This is Jocko Podcast number 363 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. All commanders should consider the professional development of their subordinates a principal responsibility of command. Commanders should foster a personal personal teacher-student relationship with their subordinates. Commanders are expected to conduct a continuing professional education program for their subordinates, which includes developing military judgment and decision-making and teaches general professional subjects and specific technical subjects pertinent to occupational specialties. Useful tools for general professional development include supervised reading programs, map exercises, war games, battle studies, and terrain studies. Commanders should see the development of their subordinates as a direct reflection of themselves. Finally, every Marine has a basic responsibility to study the profession of arms on his own. A leader without either interest in or knowledge of the history, the theory of warfare, and the intellectual content of his profession is a leader in appearance only. Self-study in the art and science of war is at least equal in importance and should receive equal time to maintaining physical condition. This is particularly true among officers. After all, an officer's principal weapon is his mind. And that right there, this is a little excerpt from the Fleet Marine Force Manual 1, War Fighting, a book that was uh, commissioned by General Al Gray, the 29th Commandant of the Marine Corps, and one of the most iconic Commandants of the Marine Corps. It's one of the first manuals that we covered on this podcast. And what that excerpt describes is an approach that I have tried to take to study war, to study history, the theory of war, the history of war, the profession of war. And I've met some folks along the way who are also enthralled by the study of history and warfare. And one of the most knowledgeable that I've met is here with us tonight. His name is J.D. Judd, J.D. Baker. He served in the Marine Corps for 21 years as an infantryman, a sniper, drill instructor, senior enlisted advisor in a bunch of different billets, deployed to war zones around the world. And he's here with us tonight to share his experiences and lessons learned with us. J.D., thanks for coming by, man. Thanks for having me on. Uh, let's get into it, man. You've got so much knowledge that I want to squeeze out of you, and uh, we'll get to the end where we'll talk about how I plan to squeeze knowledge out of you. I got a whole, I got a whole campaign plan on how to do that. But let's let's talk about you, where you came from, how you grew up. So, when were you born? Uh, sixty nine, March eighth, nineteen sixty nine. And and where? Uh, Huntington, West Virginia, uh, right on the Ohio River. Uh, down on the southeastern side, so you could basically swim to Ohio and walk to Kentucky. <laughs> That's a pretty good triathlon right there, huh? Yeah, yeah. The three-state triathlon. So what'd your, what'd your mom and dad do? 
Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home. Uh, my dad, uh, he worked for a nickel plant, a uh, big industrial kind of area down there on the river, mm-hmm. uh, you know, West Virginia, coal, nickel, uh, all that kind of stuff. And uh, my dad hated his job. Uh, you know, he had a suit and tie, go into work every day, same uh, kind of deal. And uh, all he wanted to do was uh, scout Major League Baseball. Uh, so he put applications out all over the place, got picked up by the Pittsburgh Pirates, and uh, got to live out the rest of his life uh, scouting baseball. Did he, did he quit his job at the nickel plant? Uh, he just put in enough time to, to get retirement, like okay. as soon as like early retirement. So it's kind of like in the military, you just do the 20 years. What is he putting on his application to become a major league scout? I mean, uh, well, don't you have to spend like time looking at high schools, then maybe you get a community college, then you go to a regular college, then you get to go to be a, a scout for the Pittsburgh Pirates? That's a big jump out of the gate, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty big jump. Uh, my dad played uh, college ball at Marshall, uh, okay. uh, so he played a little bit of college ball. And, you know, in our household, uh, if it wasn't white with little red, you know, <laughs> stitches on it, my dad didn't give two shits about it. Uh, so basically, we were raised in a dugout, uh, which was super cool for kids uh, growing up with uh, me and my older brother. Uh, so it was it was strictly baseball. He coached uh, baseball. Never like coached us while we were playing little league. My dad coached Babe Ruth. Uh, he coached some of the travel teams, stuff like that. He, was he smart enough to realize that he shouldn't coach you? Uh, he didn't like little kids. Okay, <laughs> that'll do it too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he didn't want to be the one out there, like you know, clapping for little Johnny and Susie, telling them they're doing a great job. <laughs> Uh, you know what I mean? He wanted like to elevate, uh, you know, kids that are you know thirteen and above. They kind of know that they they know the basics of the game. Was he doing like weird subliminal stuff to you when you were little? To like, was he like throwing the apple to you? Like, oh, hey, hey, Judd, you want an apple? Like, toss it to you real quick. We got to catch it to work on your hand eye skills. I feel like I did that with my kids. I was doing all this weird kind of like things. Well, well the funny thing is, is like both myself and my brother, uh, we, we throw right, but we bat left. And I don't remember ever, like, it's kind of like learning to swim. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't remember when I learned to swim. And I don't remember learning how to swing a bat. But both my brother and I both bat left-handed because in baseball you have an advantage. Mm-hmm. You're already facing first when you get done swinging, so you've got to drop. You can get to first base faster. Mm-hmm. So it was That's like the kind it, of thing it, right it, there. I bet your dad was like, "No, no, no! You need to stand over here, buddy. Stand over here." Right. Uh, so yeah, it was all that with baseball, uh, and of course, as a kid, we we loved the game. Um, you know, we played other sports as well, but baseball was. What every, other sports did you play? Uh, we played soccer. We played basketball. Uh, we, you know, play a little bit of football, but not as much. It was mainly, it was baseball. Uh, <laughs> now, now you played the other sports all the way through high school, or at some point did we focus and just go like it's baseball, baseball, and baseball? It was pretty much like uh, you know, soccer was mainly for the running aspect to be prepared for baseball season. <laughs> like everything came off of baseball. Uh, you know, uh, basketball. Uh, my brother wrestled because uh, he wasn't coordinated enough to play basketball. Um, so uh, he wrestled. Uh, you know, I played basketball. Loved the just game. Just a little, just a little thing here for for the wrestlers out there. I got to say this, Jeremy Stevens. You know, he's an MMA fighter. And a great dude, but he wrestled in Iowa, you know, in high school and stuff. And and one of their insults they would say 
if someone came into, if they wrestled against a guy or someone that was in the wrestling room, they'd be like, oh, how was that guy? He said, oh, he felt like a basketball player, <laughs> meaning just like weak. <laughs> so when you say, I just gotta throw that out there for the wrestlers, because I can't let it go unchecked that you're like too, not coordinated enough to play basketball, so we wrestled and said, so I gotta give some props to my wrestlers out there. Oh, that. Uh, yeah, my brother on the wrestling team, you know, of course, my older brother, and of course, his wrestling friends would all come over to the house and, and want to, you know, put the basketball player into a pretzel <laughs> in the middle of the family room on a daily basis. Uh, the only thing I liked about it was when we sat at the dinner table, uh, you know, I didn't have to cut weight. Oh, yeah. And my brother is over there just like yeah, lettuce, you know, just shaking the water off, and I've got like a big thing of pasta and just you know just wolfing it down uh so i always felt bad uh you know for my brother in those aspects but uh you know wrestling was was huge in in west virginia you know at uh, huntington high where we went to school uh coach archer legendary all-american wrestler coming out of there uh we had some other ken zeffalato guys you know wrestled pan Am game i mean wrestling was huge so it was uh it, it was a it was a, a real big deal, but I, I was just thankful enough that that I didn't have to like cut weight and <laughs> you know and the wrestling practices were just brutal. brutal. I mean, my brother would come back. I mean, basketball practice, he'd go shoot some hoop, man, play a little one on one. You know what I mean? It was like nothing demanding. Uh, you know what I mean? You wear a little. You know, back then in the seventies, those you know tube socks all yeah. the way up, yeah. little cute Short shorts, shorts, man. <laughs> yeah, little short shorts, put on a tank top, man. That's you what we're what I mean? doing. Yeah, uh, you know, watch Larry Bird. Magic Johnson kind of stuff, and uh, yeah, you played basketball. So uh, yeah, I always yeah the wrestlers that was that was next level. Uh, yeah. So did you, so did you did you play three sports in high school then, or did you at some point just play baseball? Yeah, it ended up just being baseball. <laughs> Your dad's uh, plan came together. Yeah, uh, and, and the what other position did you play? I was a pitcher. How tall are you? Uh, six foot three. I went and talked to the Padres a few years ago. And, you know, I, I don't really follow baseball super close. But when I was growing up, it seemed like everyone that played baseball was like a little Dominican dude or a little Puerto Rican dude, you know, like little guys. And I went and talked to the Padres. Every one of those guys was a freaking giant human. Giant. And I was like, oh, I guess it's a huge advantage. And I guess it's coming back now where they got some smaller players. But it's a huge advantage, right, to be a pitcher and be 6'3". Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I started out as a kid. Uh, I think I was eight years old for my birthday. You know, we didn't make a big deal out of birthdays. We just, you know, run into mom and dad's room on your birthday and they'd have a present for you. And mine was a catcher's mitt because they thought, you know, my dad was like, okay, he's going to be the short one. So he'll be the catcher. You know what I mean? My older brother, Tommy, he's going to be the tall one. So he'll be the pitcher. My dad was a pitcher. He's six foot three. Uh, you know, he was, a, he was a, a big guy. I mean, not like big unit kind of guy that big. Uh, you know, six seven, six nine. But um, then, at, at like ten years old, my brother quit growing, and and I kept growing. So then we we reversed. We just traded mitts. Yeah. So then my brother became a catcher, which I was thankful for because again, as you can kind of see with like you know uh, it, the basketball aspect, a catcher is a that's a brutal brutal job uh, uh you know i mean but you control the field you're the leader uh you're the only one that can see all eight players at one time but you know uh, being a catcher just you know hot sweaty behind the plate you're engaged in every play out there uh, and my brother was really good my brother was a, a really good baseball player uh as a catcher 
Um, and then for me, being a pitcher, you're, you're kind of like the you know, like a basketball player compared to a wrestler. You're the you know, you, know, you got to take care of the pitcher, and uh, you know what I mean. He's you know he's special uh, kind of aspect of it. So I, I I didn't get beat up as much uh, as my brother did. <laughs> And how about school? Are you doing all right in school as far as, like, grades and everything? Do you care? Is it, like, no big deal? Are you getting into trouble? What's going on with your just your youth? Yeah, uh, school, uh, pretty much, uh, yeah, terrible. Uh, just <laughs> just terrible. Uh, the, the coolest thing in school uh, was in, in the first grade. Uh, my, my first grade teacher was Mrs. Goheen. Uh, and Miss Goheen, cool thing about it is I'm friends with her on Facebook, even still today, which is like super cool with social media to be friends with Miss Goheen. And, uh, and she made us do a book report. Uh, and probably the biggest impact she had on me was she let you pick whatever book. She didn't like assign a book to make us read something specific. You got to pick whatever you wanted. Uh, me, I, I did my first book report on Babe Ruth. Uh, with the New York Yankees. Obviously, we had a lot of baseball books in the house, uh, just laying around uh, everywhere. Uh, so she allowed me to write my first book report uh, and and then just to have a love of reading. It doesn't matter what you read, just read. So uh, after that, I, I always enjoyed reading as a kid, but uh, you know, I, I loved gym class. I liked recess. I, I liked to play. Uh, you know what I mean? Whatever the game is, it doesn't matter. I, I enjoyed playing a game, and and uh, and my dad was always pretty. You know, he, he was pretty liberal with the aspects of you know, boys will be boys kind of aspect. But my dad was a mathematician. So he loved math. So, and I'm the complete opposite. I, I, I don't like math. I, I'd rather the liberal arts, the history, the reading, the books and stuff. So, uh, you know, we, we kept enough to play sports. So you got to have a 2.0 to play ball. So as long as you were above a 2.0, my dad was like, well, I'm good with that. You know what I mean? It's, you know, I wasn't an honor society or holding candles, having photos taken in school. Uh, but I had a lot of fun. Great, uh, great childhood. You got an A in recess, lunch, gym class, and fun. I like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I knocked it out the park uh, in all those areas. Uh, and then, uh, you know, where, where I grew up, probably the, another – big aspect of my life was uh, at eight years old, uh, my dad sent me to camp. Uh, now, th this is a camp. It's called Camp Walla Watula, and it's in Millboro Springs, Virginia, Bath County, uh, on the Cowpasture River. My dad went to this camp. And uh, it's kind of like Hogsworth, you know, like the Harry Potter stuff, where they would take us to the train station in Huntington. You'd have your, your big, big uh, luggage. Uh, and you'd get on a train, and we would take the train to Clifton Forge, Virginia, and the counselors would pick us up from the train, throw it all of our luggage in there, and take us out to Camp Walla Watula on the Calpasture River for seven weeks, living in tents. And it was like I loved camp. Uh, hunting, you know, you shot 22 rifles, you shot bow and arrow, canoeing, swimming, horsebacking, you know, orienteering, uh, leaf identifications, knot tying, all these kind of things. And it was, you know, at Camp Walla Watula, uh, and you know, I had to beg my parents to go at, at eight years old because normally you had to go when you were nine, but my older brother went. And when we went to go pick up my brother and I got to see this camp, I was like, oh, this is, this is it. Like, so we would spend seven weeks 
every summer on the Cowpasture River at, at camp. Uh, which had a huge effect uh, on the rest of my life. I mean, the, you know, going into the Marine Corps was like going to camp. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, you, know, you join the infantry, going to camp. Uh, you know, you got activity. So you did that every year for like until you were how old? Until uh, I was 14. Uh, and then Don Sutton, the family that owned the camp that had, like I said, my dad went to that camp. Uh, they, the, he had two sons and nobody wanted to, to take the camp over. So they basically shut the camp down. But every June, uh, we have a reunion uh, with all the guys at Camp Walla Tool. The, the the sad thing is, is like I'm one of the youngest uh, of the re, of the reunion guys, and we go back every June. Uh, but being at camp with uh, the counselors, and you know, they had a a, a a big effect on me as a kid growing up. Of like. I mean, you sat at, at tables. They taught you, you know, manners, how to eat, you know, how to take care of yourself, basically how to be a Virginian. Um, and every uh, at the three and at the three week mark, they would take us into Lexington, Virginia, uh, you know, VMI's there, and then they've got the uh, Robert E. Lee tomb is there. So we would, you know, go visit Robert E. Lee. So like at the first time at, at eight years old. Yeah, I remember seeing the Robert E. Lee, you know, Stonewall Jackson, Virginia, uh, all that, Washington. You know, uh, you know Virginia in history is, is huge. Uh, and, and at camp, you know, you had, you know, mandatory like nap time. At, you know, after lunch, you'd come back and it was like reading, reading, laying a rack kind of an event. So, you know, you could bring a book, you could write letters home. Uh, the letter writing really didn't go very well. I think my mom still has the first letter I wrote. And it was like, dear mom and dad, having a good Judd. <laughs> and that was it. Uh, you know what I mean? And uh but yeah, it, it uh, that that aspect of, of growing up and, and seeing mentorship of like the counselors that came into the camp and they mentored us at, you know, at a very early age and, and seeing kind of like what right looked like mm-hmm. uh, for growing into becoming a man was a, uh, was a huge, huge aspect. Of, that uh, was an all boy camp. Um, all boys. Like. Yep. Uh, there was a all girls camp right down the river called Camp Mont Shenandoah still exists today. Uh, and, you know, we would do like a dance with mm-hmm. them and stuff. We'd go up river and, and, uh, and, and, and go there and, you know, it was nice to see you know young girls uh, at a camp. Uh, so it was it was fun, but um, yeah, I mean uh, the Cowpasture River is a is a part of my life. I mean, I've, I've got when I die, I want to be cremated, and my ashes dumped in the Cowpasture. Uh, we go every year. I mean, I, I love the place. My wife and I, Tracy, we were married in the Cowpasture River, like standing in the river. Uh, yeah, there's a, that's a huge tie to me. Uh, is that river and that part of my life. How far is that river from where you grew up? Probably about three and a half hours, three and a half hours, four hours, just over the uh, Appalachia. It's on the uh, on the Virginia, West Virginia border uh, in Bath County, Virginia, up in the uh, mountains up there. Beautiful part. So were you uh, on track to, like, go to college and play baseball? Were you good enough? Were you, like, what was going on with that? Well, uh, you know, the good thing is I had my older brother, and so I could kind of, like, watch what he did and see his mistakes and try not to repeat, uh, you know, because you got to go on and deal with my dad. Uh, So my brother went to WVU, uh, you know what I mean? He was going to try the college thing, and uh, my brother was a lot lot smarter than I was, uh, and 
but still, uh, he couldn't figure out that you have to go to class to like get a grade. <laughs> <laughs> did, did he get recruited for baseball? Was he playing baseball there? No, no, no. So uh, he, he just went. Yeah, he was just you know going so, to college. So, despite the efforts of your dad to turn you guys into baseball players that could play in college, he didn't. He didn't play in college. No, uh, and if you, with my dad's aspect of, uh, he more or less <laughs> looked at it on the aspects of try to go straight farm league. Like, you know, if I, I would say that my dad, uh, he kind of looked at it like you can always go to college. Mm-hmm. You can be 60 years old, man. You can go to college. Mm-hmm. You, you get one shot to play pro ball. And uh, you know what I mean? And, and you try to get in, you know, if you can get minor league uh, kind of aspects. Uh, he always worried about like a college coach, uh, you know what I mean, of their pedigree. I mean, they, they can they can ruin – they can ruin a guy because uh, in college, college coach, he's there to win. He's going to throw you. He's going to work you as much as possible because that's his job. Um, and, you know, college baseball isn't necessarily as like a big thing like college football. Yeah. I mean, for to play pro football, you got to go to college. You got to play college ball. You're not going to go direct to where like baseball is more of a direct you know, the, the Derek Jeters, the, mm-hmm. the Griffies, those kind of guys. You don't go to college. You go straight to the minor leagues, and then you work your way through the minors. Uh, so that was more of, I would say, my dad's kind of uh, take on things. was. But your brother decided to go to college. Yeah, he was going to go to college. Uh, again, my, my brother was real, he was good in school. My brother was a, a lot smarter than I was. He paid attention a lot more than, than I did. Um, so he went to WVU, but uh, like I said, he didn't go to class much. Uh, you know, college football games were great on Saturday kind of thing. I'd go up and hang out with my brother. Uh, and then he ended up, uh, you know, not making the grades. And they're like, yeah, you, you can't stay at school here anymore. <laughs> uh, so my brother, he joined the Air Force. Uh, he's like, yep, well, you know, my dad's like, yep, not, not yep, don't want to hang out in the house here. Let's let's come back. So my brother joined the Air Force and uh, – and when he joined the Air Force, he was a uh, worked on C-130s, crew chief stuff with C-130s. He was out in Dias, Texas. Uh, I mean, it seemed like a pretty good gig uh, for, for what he was doing. Uh, and then for me, uh, you know, when I was uh, 17, I played on a couple of travel teams. Um, and we were playing in Cincinnati. Uh, and, you know, with, regardless of, uh, of my dad, I mean, I love my dad to death. But, uh, you know, his, his nickname you know, between, like, me and my brother, and then we called him The Dick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and love him to death. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, all my friends were like, dude, it must be so cool having, like, you know, because my dad's nickname was T-Bone. So they were like, dude, it's, like, so cool. Like, you know, your dad T-Bone. Because everybody thought my dad was great. You know what I mean? Like, he was at all the games. He, you know, whether it was football, basketball, you name it. I mean, Why did they call him T-Bone? Just because his name Tom Baker. Got and it. he was, you know, six Got foot it. three, you know, 155 pounds. He looked like just a T-Bone coming <laughs> off of a steak. And uh, so they called him T-Bone. And everybody thought it was, like, the coolest thing. Well, it's like, well, dude, you didn't live with my dad. Like, of course he's cool outside of the house. But step into the house and live with this guy. Uh, I mean, and again, it was still it was it was great. Uh, but uh, you know, my, my dad was. I mean, he was he was funny, humorous. Uh, you know, but uh, yeah, loved him to death. But he uh, we we came back from playing in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, and you know, I, I was throwing in a game. You know, my dad and I kind of got into it a little bit at the game, uh, and I was like, I'm, I'm done. You know what I mean? I, I'm done. I came back. 
I went straight up 17, uh, went to the Marine Corps recruiting office. How did you, uh, you hear about the Marine Corps? I had a buddy of mine. Uh, actually, I had quite a few friends of mine out of our class. Uh, there was a lot that went in the Marine Corps. Uh, Rick Shank uh, was one of them. His dad was a Korean Vietnam vet. He was an Army Ranger guy. Uh, but, you know, uh, there was a lot of us that had looked at the military uh, in, a, in, a, in a blue-collar town like Huntington. Uh, it's a way out. Uh, you know what I mean? So you get a lot of folks that, that join the, the military to get out. You know what I mean? Like I, there's something bigger out there. Uh, and, it, and again, like I said, I, I loved camp. <laughs> and you know, you know, I don't have to like those recruiters. Man, yeah. they were licking their chops. Oh, when you I was showed an up. idiot. They're like, "Oh, you like camp? We got camp for Yo, you." Son. Uh, yeah, it's I mean, boot camp. Yeah, You're love it. Yeah, and uh, you know, and they've got activities. Tents. And they got tents. <laughs> yeah, give you all this free stuff. You get a gun. Uh, you know, so yeah. I mean, I was and I was like, oh, you know, when I when I came in there, I was like, you know, telling the recruiter, I was like, hey, I, I've got to be infantry. And, you know, and he's you know, giving us the look like, oh, that, that's going to be a difficult one to get. You know what I mean? Because like, we didn't really know uh, a lot. And, you know, and, of course, I, I can get you, you know, guaranteed, uh, you know, infantry, you know what I mean, if you score high he's enough. Care of oh, you. yeah, yeah. I, I'm thinking, like, this guy's the heat. Like, he's hooking us up and, until I go to boot camp. Right? You know what I mean? And, and But then I'm 17, so I got to get a signature. So, so you're 17. You're 17. Are you done with high school? Or no, no, no. I still have my senior year to go. So I was like delayed entry. Okay. Uh, but I had to get my mom to sign. Uh-huh. And what mama say? Mom was all about it. She's get down out of for here. the cause. Just like, yeah. <laughs> give me that paper. Let me get, get my signature out of here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, why even waste your time? Yeah. It, it, which was, uh, you know, when you look back at like at life of like a decision that you made, at a certain, that was probably the smartest decision I ever made. Because yeah. I would have been a shit show. For sure. Oh, I'm, I'm right there with you. Thank, yeah. Thanks, thanks to my recruiter. I can't. I don't even remember anything about my recruiter, but I just would like to thank him, even though he probably screwed me over. He's like, "Oh yeah, you're gonna go in the SEAL team, sure, buddy. Yeah, you look, uh, you know. Oh yeah, you'll be, you'll, be, you'll be, you're gonna make a great SEAL, right? That's <laughs> such bullshit. Like, there's no way any recruiter knows if anyone has the remotest chance of making. Oh yeah. Yeah, SEAL teams, you seem like the kind of guy that's going to do great there. It's like, yep, just sign this piece of paper. Sounds great. You know, recruiter, sir. So those guys are definitely hooking you up. But, like, that's the same with me. That the greatest thing, probably like you said, the single pivot point of the trajectory of my life was signing that piece of paper and saying, yep, I'm in. And I remember, I signed up for six years. It was six years to get a, to get a SEAL, to get a BUDS contract where you go to BUDS. Actually, all it was, actually, all it was was you sign up for six years, and that gives you a chance to take the screening test to possibly pass, to possibly go to BUDS. That's what it was. And, and you know, you're thinking you're 18 years old. Like, six years is a long, that's one-third of your life. And I remember just thinking, eh, well, whatever. We'll rock and roll. Let's do this. But definitely a pivot point. Huh, that's interesting because uh, they got me on the six-year. Like, <laughs> but they gave you infantry? Yeah. I mean, guaranteed. <laughs> guaranteed infantry. Yeah, guaranteed. <sighs> I wonder how many bonus points he got for that, that <laughs> recruiting. So you roll in there, you enlist, 
now you're in you go. you have to go to depth meetings your whole senior year of high school or something like that yeah yeah yeah. we kind of like meet on the weekends and and you know and and go for runs and stuff like that so basically you know my senior year was i mean i think i took like four gym classes uh <laughs> you know because i was like I'm, okay i'm done yeah. like this is this is what i'm gonna do so why do i need to and of course did you even dad, play baseball your senior year no i, I okay. quit everything i, I mean i, I my, my dad was not happy i was gonna say yeah it was uh but uh, you know uh, he he looked at it as I, I don't think my dad was like a big fan uh of of me making that decision mm-hmm. uh of, of going in the marines um but you know i mean he, when i remember he took me down there to the recruiting office to drop me off because i shipped like three days after graduation like the recruiter was standing at the graduation so when i walked across and i got the piece of paper yeah they got to like take it to make copies yeah he's there oh he's there but yeah i get this in the xerox machine son well the funny thing is there's like six other of my classmates that are just as stupid as me and we're all going to boot camp together which that's awesome kind of made it fun yeah yeah, so I had like Ricky Shank and Carrie Nessel are like literally in the same recruit platoon as no me. No kidding. Yeah, so it was kind of fun to where when you're seeing the drill instructor kind of you know give them a ration and you're <laughs> over there trying not to laugh, but like what's going on and then they're doing the same thing to you. So uh, it it was it was kind of nice. Like I said, it was kind of like going to camp. You know what I mean? I had some of my friends there that I'd known since you know I grew up with them. Uh, and, and there was a, you know, so it was, it was cool to have, uh, you know, a couple of guys that I went to school with and ran around with a lot, uh, in, in my recruit platoon. Uh, but I didn't realize like, and we were all guaranteed infantry, by the way. <laughs> I mean, you know, they don't make them smart coming out of Huntington, West Virginia. And, uh, and the recruiter is probably just, you know, he's loving it. Um, so until we like they're they're announcing like your military MOS at the end, you know the senior drill shark stand up there. He's like, you know, Baker Infantry. You know what I mean? He's like, guaranteed. <laughs> Boy, you're some kind of stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you know, back then, like I didn't really know that like there was other jobs like in the Marines because I knew like you know Navy Dock. You know, we get a lot of our stuff from yeah. the Navy. You know, I thought like everybody went in the Marine Corps to, to be infantry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then you, you, you got cooked. You got, every Marine or rifleman to you is the facts. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's I it. Mean, yeah. Is it everybody? How good? was boot camp when you showed up? Was it like a shocker? Were you like, holy shit? Uh, or were you just like, hey, camp, let's do this? Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, the, the shock and awe of, you know, when they bring in, I went to Paris Island. Uh, when I, I flew out of out of the Huntington, uh, it's the tri-state airport of what they call it, and that was the first time I had ever been to an airport. And I don't know, you know, the history of Huntington, of Marshall University, you might have seen the We Are Marshall, uh, the 1970 plane crash that NCAA history, you know, most fatalities. Um and that was at that airport. So it, where I grew up, the the whole Marshall University and that plane crash, November fourteenth, nineteen seventy. Uh, you know, every year in Huntington, I mean, it, it is a it's a big deal uh, for that Marshall Marshall plane crash. You know, I had you know kids that I went to school with that you know their, their parents were on that plane. Um, you know, it, it devastated the community in Huntington, and then here I am going to the airport. 
you know, and and uh, and I was like, why, why can't we just like take a bus? It's South Carolina, man. You know what I mean? Like, can we just bu-? so it was one of those props that's got like the the little curtain mm-hmm. that the you know the pilot like puts luggage on, and then he takes the curtain and whips it over there to the side, and you know what I mean? And we're ta- and that almost stopped me from going to boot camp. I mean, I was like, this is ridiculous, man. Why are we flying? And uh, so I got down there, and then they bring you in at night. You know, so you don't really know, like, where you're going, and it's, you know, coming on to Paris Island. And, of course, you hear all the mystique of Paris Island. And, of course, you remember Full Metal Jacket mm-hmm. had just came out when you and I were in high yeah. school. So, of course, you know, that dude's like a stamina comic. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? That movie was hilarious. Best, yeah. uh, you know what I mean? And and I'd probably say that with the, the drill instructors are they're, – they're, they're stand-up comics. I mean, some of the stuff that they do is just – it's Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. but it's like 18 hours of Saturday Night Live a day, and, and you're getting the end yeah. the end of the joke. You're the butt of all yeah, the jokes. Yeah, you're the butt of all the jokes. Uh, but it was still, yeah, it was, a, it was you know, the shock and all. But then once we kind of got into the rhythm of, of, of boot camp, then, uh, you know, with the drill instructors What year is this? Is this 87, 87, 88? 87. 87. Yep, uh, June. Uh, so, you know. Could have waited till the winter time to make it a little bit more pleasant down there. But yeah, so we uh, ended up there in June, graduated in August, you know, three months uh, down there. Um, and then you know, went straight off to uh, Camp Lejeune, uh, went up to Camp Geiger's where the infantry school was uh, at the time and went through, you know, infantry training school, 0311, you made it. How? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 0311, you made it. How, how's that? How was that? Uh, infantry school uh again uh, you know um kind of looking back on i mean it's 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 so many like new marines coming in that you don't really like get a lot of that individual mm-hmm. uh education how training. long was the school uh i think it was like 10 weeks maybe did you have vietnam guys teaching you or not really some of the older, like mm-hmm. the E sevens and E eights uh, that were there, were Vietnam era guys. But you know, like the what you would call like a you know the the, the troop handlers are more like the corporals and the sergeants kind of. So those guys had you know come in in like the early eighties mm-hmm. uh, and were there. But the senior uh, folks, yeah, they were they were Vietnam Vietnam era guys. Did you think you were going to war at some point? Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, I mean, it never really even like crossed my mind, uh, you know, at the point, um, uh, you know, when, uh, like, I remember I listened to you when you had like, uh, when you and Dave, when you had Dave Burke on mm-hmm. and you were talking about like the top gun when yeah. like we grew up, I was more of the John J Rambo, uh, mm-hmm. kind of like being John J kind of turned me on more than like Tom Cruise. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I mean, I couldn't relate to Tom Cruise. Yeah, I wanted like the green OD green jacket, yeah. wear jeans, boots, get a big knife with yeah. a, like a compass on the top of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? With matches in it. And, you know, and, yeah, I wanted to be you know John Jay. Uh, so, you know, uh, those aspects of it uh, were pretty interesting. Did but, you have like a global perspective of the world and think, well, you know, it's the you know the 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 uh, Cold War's going on, you know, this could kick off. Did you did you have any thoughts like that? Yeah, no. Yeah, I was going to say, because I, you know, I joined in 1990. Now, what changed for me was that the Gulf War was starting, right? So 
when I came in, it was like, oh, we're going. And I remember watching CNN, and CNN is saying there's going to be something like 30,000 casualties in the first 48 hours on our side. And I was like, oh, bro, we're going. Like, I was thinking, it's on. I'm going to get some for sure. And then once that was over, it seemed like I just seemed like, well, I'm going to be doing some kind of secret shit's going on. You know, like the SEAL teams, come on, we're doing stuff worldwide all the time. There's secret missions going on. I'm obviously going to Vietnam and fighting whatever John J. Rambo style for that stuff. <laughs> but uh, but going to the Marine Corps, 1987, it's, the world was pretty pretty peaceful at that time. Yeah, uh, you know, in the Marines, uh, we had uh, one of the uh, corporals that was there uh, that was at the infantry school. He was a Beirut guy. Uh, so, you know, like back then, like Beirut was like, which was huge for the Marine Corps, um, you know, that that incident. Uh, and, and so that was kind of, you know, Beirut and, and Granada were pretty much like the only two things. And if you weren't with a, like a specific one battalion, then everybody else in the Marine Corps, you know, they just had the overseas deployment ribbon with the good conduct. And, and that's it. Uh, you know what I mean? There wasn't any like salads hanging out. Uh, except for the you know the the, the Beirut guys, um, and then I would say that uh, my first uh, battalion I got sent to was Second Battalion Eighth Marines, and it was on Camp Geiger. And all I did was was put my sea bag on my back and face to the right, and we just walked down to the Eighth Marines barracks, and it was open squad bay. That's where that's where your first assignment was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was Second Battalion Eighth Marines. That was on Camp Geiger. It was Eighth uh, Marine Regiment was on Geiger. Everybody else was on Main Side Camp Lejeune, and Geiger was Open Squad Bay. Um, so it was, and a lot of people talk about like being in Open Squad. I loved Open Squad. It was camp. Yeah, I mean, you know, what I mean? camp it was more camp. You know what I mean? I got up there. You know, you're in a platoon. You really get to know like the guys in the platoon because of the open squad bay. I mean, there's no hiding from anybody. It's not like at the end of the day you go to your barracks room and you shut the door and it's just you and one other guy. And mm-hmm. the open squad bay, people can walk through at any time. It's all your stuff's exposed. You get a foot locker and a wall locker, and that's it. So you didn't really, you know, like nowadays, like kids move into their rooms and they got TVs, they got Xbox, they got all this kind of stuff. You couldn't have that stuff, you know, because mm-hmm. you had one TV and the duty NCO controlled what <laughs> channel it was on. Uh, but yeah, so it was it was uh, it was pretty cool uh, on those aspects. And then, you know, as soon as I got to Second Battalion Eighth Marines, my first um, my first training op was uh cold weather training up in bridgeport california oh, that's cool which was banging yeah uh you know i mean they got ski lifts up there we're skiing of course that was the first time like you ski uphill like <laughs> with a pack which that sucked <laughs> not quite as cool as <laughs> yeah not as cool you know what i mean like i wanted to go to like tahoe and <laughs> do some downhill and then of course you know marine corps with our mountaineering skis are low as bitter so it's like two by four strapped with a you know what i mean with a boot band wrapped around your mickey mouse boots and you're gonna head down the hill with a 90 pound ruck on and a rifle hanging off the front of you uh that was the only point that uh that i was really excited that i wasn't a machine gunner yeah you know what I mean? Like skiing with a with a machine gun, there's a whole another level. <laughs> <laughs> and how long were you at two eight for? I was at uh, two eight for. Uh, I stayed from just at the end of eighty seven, right into eighty nine. Oh, and so you did years there. This is your first assignment. Yeah, yeah. This is my first battalion. What uh, do you do? Did you go on deployment from there? Uh, yep. 
Uh, so we did like the Bridgeport thing. You know, you do like your workups. But stuff. did you do you did a workup? But did you go like get on a boat and go on deployment to the Med or something like that? that well, we actually did Westpac because oh, okay. uh, we came in, flew over to Oki, and then my first boat ride was on the uh, USS Fort McHenry. Right on. Uh, which you know, I, as a as a kid in camp, like I, I read, like I, I, I enjoy reading uh, and and books on adventure. Uh, you know what I mean? And I always thought, like, like when I look at, like, a Navy ship, it's kind of like being in Huntington, West Virginia. It's a blue-collar community yep. afloat. Mm-hmm. So these are, like, all the guys. Like, in the Navy, like, they, they got guys that, like, have jobs. Yeah. Like, they do stuff. Diesel mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, like, we're in the Pacific. Uh, you know what I mean? And it's just, like, it, you get to see how small you actually are. But, you know, being with the, the Navy, you know, Marines don't have a job on the boat. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We, we get up. We, our point of place of duty is in the rack. We stand in chow line a lot. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like, get done with breakfast. What are you going to do? I'm going to go, wait go for get, lunch. Go wait for lunch. <laughs> stand in line and sit there with a book. And when the Navy gets pissed off that the Marines are laying around all over their stuff, they call general quarters and we go to the rack. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and they go to work. But, uh, yeah, I was always intrigued with the Navy. Like, you know, and then just the global of travel uh, and a, like a, a Navy ship captain uh, always it seemed like a super cool job to have being a you know aboard a ship. And it's so blue collar. I mean, the guys in the Navy aboard the ships, you know, we floated Gator Navy, mm-hmm. uh, but they, they were like super great guys. They all had skill sets from, you know, electricians to the laundry, the cooks. The, I mean, they just, uh, it was it was like, you know, being in Pittsburgh. Yeah. You know, yeah. Except everybody doesn't have a mullet. You know what I mean? They got a haircut. Uh, and it's like you're afloat with a, a blue collar town. And it was, uh, it was super cool. We went to Korea. Uh, you know what I mean? So, and that was one of the things that intrigued me about just joining the Marines was I was going to get to travel and get paid. Like, you know what I mean? I get to go to cool places. And, you know, so, you know, going to Korea, going to Japan, Philippines, you know, those kind of aspects. And I'm getting a paycheck at the same time. Are you guys time. doing exercises there? Where yeah, you, go you know, like ashore? Team Spirit, yeah. and, you know, all those little names that they have for stuff because, you know, we're fighting Ivan. So everything's yeah. in Ivan. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we just, we go out, we, we go to the field, we run exercises, we come back, and then we get like, you know, like four or five days off. Uh, and in 88, uh, the Olympics were in Seoul, mm-hmm. Korea. So that was... So yeah. you were there for that? Yeah. Like we, Did you guys work security or anything or no? No. Just no, liberty. Yeah. Uh, the Marines stay down in Pohang, right outside of Pohang, and it was called Camp Moonchuck. We called it Mudchuck. <laughs> Uh, you were still burning shitters there. Uh, you know, I mean, it was primitive, primitive camp. Uh, this is where you guys, when the when the ship pulled in, that's where you went. Yep, the Navy would kick us off. Uh-huh. Uh, you know what I mean? And then we'd go into to Camp Mudchuck, and and we'd go into there. But you know, and then they had ranges. We would you know do company exercises, battalion exercises, grenade. And you're range. a straight rifleman in a platoon. Yep, straight rifleman. Just that's it. Uh, rifleman. Got Did you the best like job being a in rifleman? War. I loved it. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, like being a rifle, you just you get a rifle. Yeah, uh, it was it was super. Yeah, it was super cool. The guys in the platoon, you know, I mean? you got all these different characters just from all over that just make things like so interesting. Of just uh, you know, of hearing the stories and their background, where they grew up. 
you know, and, and, you know, back then we didn't really intermix a lot with like the platoon commander. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like our biggest uh, is usually like your squad leader because he controls your life. Mm-hmm. And then the platoon sergeant is a big role. And, you know, like the lieutenant, you'd like see him at like formation or something. You know what I mean? Because like you didn't stay in the same mm-hmm. – you know, officers are segregated out, to, you know, and then you just what we, you know, they're not in cell block. Uh, you know what I mean? Of like where we're hanging this out, is back when the, back when the Marines had didn't even have name tags on their uniforms. It no. was just like, yeah, what's your name? My name is Corporal. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you can call me Marine if you want. Yeah, I, I remember deploying on ships because I I did a few deployments. Or I did three deployments on ships with Marines and one with the carrier strike group but yeah the marines were just another i have to tell the story we you know it was a pain to get off the ship when you pulled in when you hit the pier because as soon as they rang the liberty bell everyone was in line to get out and it would take like an hour or more to get to get through that line so we used to ship pulls in gets pier side as soon as they call for liberty we'd go to the gym and get a good workout because the ship's not moving and there's no one in there because everyone's trying to go on liberty. So this one time we do that, you know, get done, go go work out, get done, take a shower, put on our liberty clothes. It's been like an hour and a half, and we go up to the quarter deck to leave, and they're carrying a freaking marine back who's so wasted. <laughs> he got wasted in an hour and a half. He was unconscious, drunk, bro. That's how hard he was going <laughs> in the paint. So that's you know good times with Marine Corps. That's usually uh, every every port call. Oh, I mean, man. somebody's gonna ruin it. Uh, and and the, the, you know the thing I used to always tell the Marine. I mean, it's almost like uh, being in jail. Like if you go to the first port call and you you're done training in the first hour and a half, and then you get restricted to the boat for six months of restriction. Oof. I mean, that's prison. Yeah, that's a sentence. Yeah. You know, everybody else is like, you know, hitting it and, you know, but it's, you know, when you, when you, when you keep everybody, you know, caged up down there in cell block and you're crossing the pond and then, you know, you hit this Liberty port and you're like, I mean, you're, you're 18, 19 years old and you're, you're legal drinking age everywhere in the world, but here, (laughs) you know what I mean? And, and of course, you know, and, but you've been in like training. So, you know, through boot camp and infantry school. So it's not like, and you can't have beer in the barracks because I lived in an open squad base. So it wasn't like we even had refrigerators. (laughs) Yeah. So any chance you got like two and a half, three years living in an open Bay barracks. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was, uh, loved it. Uh, I mean, we used to like take the wall lockers, those old gray wall uh-huh. lockers, and put them up against the walls, and you know, and we would play hardball baseball, <laughs> like because you couldn't break anything. I mean, it was like, you know, just the the antics that went on, and you know, the only bad, you know, like back then you could still smoke in the government areas, and even on ship. I yeah. mean, I can remember being on the boats, and just like you'd go into the to the cell block area where the Marines are down there and there's just like that haze of smoke <laughs> across the top. But, you know, a guy's just laying around with a, like, Coke can, flicking ashes in it. You know, it was, uh, it was a, a different different world. Uh, did, you, did you know you were, like, you found your place when you got in the Marine Corps? Were you like, oh, this is, I'm, I'm good. I've got my job forever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was... Like, I'm going to just go to camp for the rest of my life. Uh, you know, and the funny thing was, is, you know, you, uh, you, know, we, you talked about Al Gray. Uh, so this is 87. Uh, he became the commandant while I was in boot camp. Uh, so, I mean, you talk about just a, a different kind of guy. 
uh, of, of Al Gray. I mean, he's what a lot of us consider the second enlightenment of the Marine Corps. Uh, and, and this guy is all about education. You know, he's all about he wants a university. Uh, you know, I mean, I give you probably the, the coolest story of, of Al Gray. I met him in 89. Uh, uh, First Battalion, six Marines were looking for folks to do contingency operations in Panama. Noriega was running the joint down there. So I left 2-8, joined 1-6 uh, to be able to go do uh, contingency operations in Panama. Uh, you know what I mean? I, I thought one Panama, triple canopy jungle. It's got to be cool. <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, and it was just another experience uh, to be able to. So um, I, I went to one six and, and I was down there um, and we stayed at the Rodman Naval Air Force mm-hmm. uh, Naval Base down there right on the canal. They had a Howard Air Force Base. It's down there. And then the Marines operated out of what was called the uh, Arahan Tank Farm. Uh, it kind of looked like if you flew over top of it, it looked like a golf course cut in the middle of the jungle. Well, it was all like the um, the tanks for refueling uh, coming through the canal. Uh, and just seeing the Panama Canal was like the greatest engineering like I had ever seen like before because it used to be the Panama Path. You know, they used to just walk across because it was the skinniest point. And to watch the locks and the ships come through the canal was just amazing. Uh, so, you know, for a 19-year-old kid, like, seeing the Panama Canal and, you know, reading about it, it was just – it was an amazing experience. But we would go out, and you were on, like, a six-day rotation. And, you know, you did two days in, in the FOB, uh, which was just out in the middle of the jungle. It was the Ford operating base. And then you would do two days on patrol, and then they'd bring you back for two days in the rear. And you were just on this rotation. And there was a, just a company of Marines down there. Uh, it was the Navy. Navy SEALs were down there. You know, they had Army folks down there. Um, but that was our assignment. <clears throat> and I remember um, Al Gray it was the commandant, and I was in the FOB. And— I'm I'm sitting in the fighting position. We had fighting positions around there, so I was you know, man in the fighting positions. Me and me and one other guy, and, and the heat tabs going down. It's getting dark, and we kind of can see like this entourage of people milling about the area, and it just not not making too much sense of like like who is this? Well, next thing you know, this older guy. I mean, it's dark out. I really don't know who it is. He hops down in the in the in the fighting position with me. And he's like, hey, who are you? I was like, Lance oh, Corporal J.D. Baker. You know what I mean? And he's like, oh, hey, how's things going? I was like, who, who are you? I was like, Al Gray. And, hmm, name sounds familiar. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, like, you know, Al Gray was just, you know, Al Gray Marine. I mean, that's just how he went by. Uh, and he was a prior enlisted. Uh, you know, infantry, uh, made it all the way to sergeant, and they thought he'd make a good officer, so they sent him to OCS uh, and made his way up through the ranks from New Jersey. Uh, he was a baseball player. So he started asking me just, I mean, of anything going on, just ask me, like, who are my parents? Like, what you, what's my dad do? What's my mom do? Kind of like the stuff how you and I, mm-hmm. when we first got on, just started asking me those personal questions. And when I told him about my dad with baseball, he was like, you know, his, he like lit up. Like, because he was like, you know, I played semi-pro baseball up in New Jersey. They call he was called the Pelican Pounder. 
He was a hell the of an Pelican a, pounder. Yeah, he played for the Pelicans. It was okay, a semi-pro God. team up there. <laughs> and he literally, years later, I was up at his house in Alexandria, and he's showing me the, the front-page picture. He had the clipping, you know, the Pelican pounder, Al Gray, <laughs> which was pretty cool to see. So he was a big baseball guy. And uh, and for me, being an E3, I was the Lance Corporal at that time with the Commandant of the Marine Corps. I have now had a relationship with that guy for 35 years. Which was just amazing. He was just a, a different. How did you stay in touch with him after that? He just or did always, you reconnect with him later? He's always been around the Marine Corps. Like, you know, Al Gray has oh, just. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, he's just one of those guys. Like, we could be sitting in here doing this podcast. And next thing you know, he'd just show up. I mean, because <laughs> that's how he was. as like a commandant. He didn't tell people when he was going places. I mean, he just, uh, his career, you know, he was the first one to just take his official photo and camis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the kind of guy that he was uh, uh, that really uh, had, a, had a big effect on, on me was when he was the commandant of the Marine Corps. On the weekend, he was out front of his commandant's house at 8th and I, you know, down in southeast D.C., and he's out doing the gardening at the front of the house. And this elderly uh, black woman that lived down the street was walking by and and she was, you know, stopped and said hello. And, you know, Al Gray was like, hey, how you doing? Didn't say, like, who he was. She just thought he was the gardener. And she's like, man, I've lived here in South D.C. my entire life. And I've always wondered what it looks like on the inside of that house. So Al Gray was kind of like, hmm, interesting. So goes to a staff meeting on Monday, and he's like, I'm having a garden party. And I'm inviting all my neighbors so they send out invitations to block radiuses all around, you know, eighth and I, and he's inviting. All, and of course, you know, he's got staff guys going. Okay, we're going to put a rope here. Let's take this thing down. I mean, because they got a lot of like a chesty puller's underwear in there or something. They don't want somebody to take. Uh, you know what I mean? And now Grace like, no man, it's they, these are my neighbors. Like, do you like when your neighbors come over? Do you put stuff away? Do you put ropes up? And they're only allowed in certain sections of your house. These are my neighbors. And sure enough, man, he has his party, and the neighbors are all coming in, and here's that elderly black woman comes in, and who she meet at the door? Al Gray. She thought he was the gardener, and there he is. I mean, when they got done with the end of the event, not one thing was stolen, nothing broken. You know what I mean? And the Marines up at 8th and I weren't having any more problems out in town anymore with the neighbors in and around southeast D.C. It was just a, an extended hand of these are our neighbors, and that's – kind of sums up of like who Al Gray is. So he had a huge effect on the Marine Corps just in that four-year period of time. And, and I just got lucky enough to, to meet him uh, in Panama in 89 and just stayed in contact. Of it. And his memory is just like he could remember like exact dates, names. Of a, it, it, the guy's got a phenomenal memory and he was self-educated you know i mean he was number one thing was was the library you know i mean get a book read it and you know now marine corps has the reading list Mm -hmm. which is kind of cool we got a lot of cool books on there you know what i mean so you go through the different grade levels and you know you can get books and and the marine corps was always really big into their history and, and big into the reading which one that fell in line with me love history uh, love the love the reading aspect of it, and you know, reading. If this is going to be your trade, if this is what you're going to do, then you know, you need to read a lot of books. And 
you know, I had some uh, other officers, you know, one, uh, Eric Carlson, he told me to cast my net widely. Like, don't just pigeonhole, like, just don't read all military. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So cast your net widely so that you get a, you know, a different perspective on different things. And, and uh, so that was, uh, that was, had a, that was pretty cool uh, with, with Eric, um, you know, and casting my net. So, I, I mean, I, I read from, Danielle Steele, uh, anything that I could get my hands on just to be able to, to read. Uh, and the imagination, Rudyard Kipling, uh, you know, Henry David Thoreau. Uh, I even read some uh, theoretical physicists, the cork and the jaguar, which was like, I, I, that'd be a cool job to be like a theoretical, just like sit in a room like this and I just think for eight hours <laughs> and of stuff and, you know, go back. Uh, but that was a, uh, that was that was pretty cool. Were you where were you when the invasion went down in Panama? Uh, we were uh, the invasion. We were back uh, stateside because we were rotated. rotated. In. You you went down on a ninety day tour. Uh, you did a, a ninety day uh, and then rotated back. Uh, so that was in in eighty nine. Uh, but that was also I was a I was a fire team leader. Uh, so that was like my first uh, go around being a fire team leader and and. That was probably my first realization, even though like nothing, nothing happened. Like we didn't get any gunfights while we were down there. There was events that were taking place. Just me personally, I, I didn't have any events. Uh, but when you get issued, li- you know, issued live ammo and you take the BFA off the, you know what I mean? It, it got real. Like then I was kind of like, okay, this, this is, this isn't like camp anymore. Like, you know what I mean? But being in triple canopy down there and, you know, we went, they used to have Fort Sherman, the army base that was down there and you'd go through jungle, uh, jungle warfare and jungle survival, a phenomenal place. You know, when they take you down there, they got like this little zoo that they like show you the animals that you can yeah. encounter while you're there. Dude, it wasn't the Panamanian defense force that we were scared of. <laughs> it was the, the creatures in that jungle. Uh, when like seeing like the anaconda, uh, you know what I mean? I was like, yeah. that, that that's a big, that's a big snake. I was, I was lucky when I was at SEAL team one, we were like the designated Southeast Asia team. And so we were supposed to be ready for the jungle and in our platoon workup, getting ready to deploy. We went and did like a month in Panama. We went to that zoo, all that stuff. Went to that army, uh, jungle survival training I don't know if we went through like a full school, but it was like a couple, like a day and a half or something like this. They're, t- you know, sh- showing you what to watch out for and all that kind of stuff. But it was awesome. You know, then we went, we just went out and lived in the jungle for like a month and we had a little base camp set up and we'd go out and do our training throughout the day. We would do, we would do occasionally, we'd try and do night immediate action drills, which is like completely black. There's no night vision days, you know, just completely black, running through the jungle, sending up a loom, you know, hitting trees with your loom by accident. Cause I was a radiumist. So I was always, I was always firing a loom. It was freaking awesome. You get, you get good when you, when you spend that much time in the field, you get good at it. Yeah. And doing the three months down there, that's where I would say that I got good at being an infantryman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. You're talking about like, you know, because when it got dark, oh, it's I mean, it, do you remember the is black, well, dude? Do you remember those MVGs we had back then, to where like the starlight yeah, scope, to where yeah. okay, well, one, it requires starlight. Yeah, we didn't even use those down there. 
And then uh, you being the radio operators, I don't know what you guys remember. We had the 77s, mm-hmm. uh, the Prick 77s, yeah. the 104s, mm-hmm. uh, you know what I mean? To where, like, you had to be good. Oh, yeah. You had to with have comp. skills. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a skill set yeah. to run comp. Like, when I look at the communications that these folks have nowadays, oh, it's yeah. like, wow. Like, yeah. trying to get a comp shot with a 77 or a 104. <laughs> Uh, was you know, that's when the communicators had some serious skill sets yeah. uh, to be able to to manipulate and operate calm, especially down there. Uh, that was the first time as like being a team leader, I had to do like you know patrol overlays. So I had to I had to get good at my job, um, and and that, I would say that that probably was the the pinnacle of like those three months spent down there. I, I that's when I became an infantryman. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as what we would call it, because in 0311, is, you're a scout, is basically, uh, is pretty much what you are. Um, and then that had a, a big effect on me uh, as being a Marine, of what's important uh, as far as like training and education wise, of yeah. becoming a professional infantryman uh, was really big. So it's not too long after that that the Gulf War starts heating up, the first Gulf War. Yes, and so where? How do you how do you slot into that? You're at one six now. Yeah, I'm, uh, same battalion I was in Panama with. Uh, we got a new platoon sergeant when we came back. Uh, that guy, uh, his name was Eli Tucker. Uh, his nickname was Eli Tucker, the big motherfucker, because uh, that dude was jacked. Uh, you know what I mean? And just ruthless, but a hell of an. He had a huge impact on me. Uh, he was a sergeant uh, E five. Uh, but that guy, when when I when you like, if you look up Marine Infantryman in the dictionary, it's Eli Tucker is in that book. Uh, he's just a phenomenal guy, uh, both up and down the ladder. He he pulled respect from the, the officers uh, as well as as any enlisted in that battalion, uh, and and so he was my platoon sergeant. We were on on deployment uh, again over in the Far East, and uh, we hopped in. We were in the Philippines. And Noriega decided to add on to his, you know, southern property. So he's, oh, you mean uh, Saddam? Yeah, Saddam. Run. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So he takes over. Uh, he goes over, uh, snatches up Kuwait. We're in the Philippines. They throw us on the USS Brokenawa, the Okinawa, <laughs> uh, and boom, we steam around, and they kick us off the boat, and we're in country. Uh, right there, coming in September. So mm-hmm. it you know, went down in August. They had us in. Uh, we were one of the first Marine battalions uh, to hit the ground. Uh, in Saudi Arabia and then it was just so did you stay there the whole time yes how long were how long were you there for like seven and a half months we yeah it was terrible uh, it was uh, it just was, living in a tent in the desert. Basically, we didn't even have the tents. Yeah, we had those radar scattering nets kind of things. So yeah. you just you know in a poncho Yeah, we were just for and, for how long did you live like that? We were out there for like over seven months <laughs> Yeah, it was terrible. Uh, and you had to have a cot, you know, those little green cots yeah. because the, the desert sand was just so hot. Uh, but the cool thing was about the battalion, you know, we kind of talked about earlier, my battalion commander was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jones. Uh, and his, his initials were TC, so we called him Too Cool. Uh, and Jones was a phenomenal uh, battalion commander. Uh, Jones, uh, with, with the, he was the kind of guy – that uh, he like knew everybody in the battalion. He knew where you were from. He knew a little bit about. He was very personable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, and that was almost like every Marine battalion's their leadership were all Vietnam vets. 
so they knew what was important of what we needed to know. Uh, there wasn't, uh, you know, um, and then you go up to the regimental level, and then you've got Al Gray as the commandant. You know, you got uh, Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf, you know what I mean, Army commander. And then Joint Chiefs, you got Colin Powell kind of run. So it's almost like the stars have aligned. You know, when some folks are like, yeah, Desert Storm was like, what, like 96 hours? There's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because of those guys are like, yeah, we're not doing this one again. And I mean, when when we were, it was a long wait. Uh, that was a. And what are you doing while you're waiting? Just training every day, prepping, getting trained, ready. Yep. Trying on your gas mask. Trying on your gas mask again. Trying on your gas <laughs> mask again. Did you get? Were you guys hearing this casualty thing that I saw on CNN? Like, hey, there's going to be mass casualties. Were you expecting that? Were they briefing you on that? Yeah, they actually uh, flew in a whole bunch of replacements. Uh, you know, right prior to the ground war kicking off. And we're like, what are these dudes doing here? <laughs> you know what I mean? And they're like, oh, these are the replacement guys. Uh, you know what I mean? Of coming in. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I would probably say like, yeah, I got, I got really sick of the gas mask. Uh, but when they show you like photos and stuff of like what people look like mm. with blister agent and like, yeah. like that was like a, that was a real threat. Mm. Like everybody was like scared for those aspects of, of the chemical mines. And our battalion, we, we had the mine belts uh, of blowing the mine belts that were out there, uh, which was you know, interesting within itself. Uh, you know, when, when So that was your mission? Yeah, it was, well, we had to get through those mine belts first. So there was two big mine belts. So we got the, uh, we're all, everybody's mecked up. Uh, and you, you got the, uh, the, the lines that can shoot over mm-hmm. the back of the, uh, the Amtrak's and detonate and right. then it give you a kind of a lane kind of a thing to go through. Uh, some of them worked, some of them didn't. So we had that, yeah, we had tanks uh, that were there with us. Uh, the tanks that were attached to us, I remember their call sign because it was public enemy, uh, which was like a super, like if you're gonna be like a tank guy, that's like a, that's a cool. That's a great call That's sign a great call sign, sure. like public enemy. Uh, and you know, those guys would come through and push the plows uh, and just the, the, the air power, the amount of support, and being an 0311, like, on the ground, I, I felt like I didn't even need a gun. I mean, the, the kitchen sink was being thrown at these folks. I mean, they were just it – was, it was all on. It was like a, a live fire exercise. So when it kicked off, what was your, what was your, what was your platoon's mission? Uh, breaching, getting through, and then they had like on the other side of the mine belts was defensive positions for the Iraqis. So we all had certain objectives that we kind of had to hit. And, uh, you know, just to get through the mine belts, they thought it would take like days for us to get through the mine belts, not a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. And then we had the Army's Tiger Brigade that was following up. They were the ones that were going to do the big uh, left, uh, the big left hook going up into Iraq. With the, I mean, I'd never seen so many Bradleys, a- M1 Abrams. Because remember, that's when the M1 came out, the Abram, which that thing is that's a badass piece of oh, gear. For sure. And uh, just so we did the mine belts, they broke left. They start heading up to Iraq, and we're when we hit the the objectives uh, uh, for our company objectives. And so these are like little Iraqi positions. These were your company objectives. Was yep. like little pillboxes or whatever. Yeah, if, if even that. I mean, they had been sitting out there for so. Like we had these extravagant, like what we thought we were going to encounter, and then what we actually encountered were 
not the same. Like some couple sandbags and a dude with an AK? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and they were like in living quarters. Like they had been out there so long, just like us. Like you're just trying to make your life comfortable. Uh-huh. So get some plywood, you know what I mean? Dig a hole, put it over top of it. You know what I mean? Make a nice little area. You know, you can brew up ramen. You got your coffee, that kind of stuff. They're just basically out there living. And the, the frontline troops like weren't the Republican Guard guys. Mm-hmm. They had those guys behind them to make sure that they didn't run run away. Um, and so, you know, as soon as you start coming through, it's basically we, we hit them. And just they were white like, flags? Oh, yeah. I mean, because they were like, oh, my God, they're, they're here already. <laughs> you know, like their, their coffee pot was like still warm, you know what I mean, when we rolled in. And uh, then it was just it was just a Rolex. I mean, once we went through the, of course, you know, everybody, you know, you, you're scared. I mean, you know, when you're on the other side of the mine belts and they're they're dropping artillery and those sorts of things are coming on. So you can you can hear the explosions. You know, the, the you know they set the oil fields on fire. So you've just got like that oil fields and the black smoke and all that kind of. So it's like, were you freaking stoked? Like, to, yeah, to be there and just like hell. Yeah, and then let's get the hell out of here. You so, know then what I mean? it, so how long did it take before you got your objective secured? And then what you do? Uh, then we loaded up straight to Kuwait. I mean, and it was it was just game on. I mean, we we uh, we rolled it. That air war and that campaign that those folks did, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there wasn't like a window pane left <laughs> intact in Kuwait. I mean, they. They, they, like I said, they threw the kitchen sink at them. I mean, the, the air power above us, even with our, with our helicopter support, with Cobras, the Army, with their Apaches, and then all the fast movers and stuff over there. I mean, they just, there was a lot of craters. That mile of death, because I remember years later, probably like I think it was 93 or 94, I went to Kuwait, and we were doing like training, and we drove up the mile of death, and there's still vehicles all over the place that we just blasted. Oh, yeah, and then you know, then the, they they want to make it look like the Kuwaitis like had a part in it. So then they're going to let them come back in and you know shoot into the air. And yeah, we took our country back and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that place was a wreck. It's amazing what it looks like now uh, yeah. compared to. Yeah, I mean they they uh, they they took the wood to it. But it was uh, you know of seeing that in in ninety one and, and just seeing the the amount of power the United States has. Uh, it's just unimaginable of of what we can bring to bear. Uh, but I look at the commanders that were those senior commanders. You know, a, a few years later after that, I read Colin Powell's autobiography. Phenomenal uh, individual, phenomenal career. Uh, but I, I look at those guys in the in the leadership positions of of where they were and their careers of what they had gone through, coming out of Vietnam and yeah. seeing that kind of stuff. So when you know, now it's their turn mm-hmm. uh, to go. I, I was very thankful for that. But even the, the battalion commanders, you know, them having combat experience, uh, you know, what I mean, was a it was it was a game changer for us to to have somebody uh, that you know directly looking out for you that that's been there, done that, and has the t-shirt and hat kind of aspect, and and they know what right looks like, uh, and. The way they were as leaders, like I said, I mean, Tukul Jones was uh, as the battalion commander. He was, uh, you know, just phenomenal mm-hmm. as a leader because he was personal. Like you felt like you had a relationship with the guy, and and of course, you know, he always had he loved sports. 
you know, it was big and with activity. So, you know, we had softball bats. I played third base for his, you know, for his battalion team. Uh, you know what I mean? So third base and, you know, I got an arm. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? Love playing. You know, so it was like camp. But you know what I mean? <laughs> Again, but we're in the middle of the desert. Uh. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, you mentioned that you had these guys who were running the show. And you know when when we just had this Afghanistan pull out, which is just a big disaster. And you look at the entire the entire Afghanistan compa- campaign and the Iraq campaign that 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 took place when I was in. And you know, did these people learn anything from Vietnam? And then you look at how those guys handled the first Gulf War. It's like you know they learned something from Vietnam. Like we're not going to do it like that. We're going to go in there with overwhelming force. I mean, overwhelming times five. Like, there's nothing's going to stop us, and we're going to end up doing this in three days. That's what's going to happen. And like you said, people go, oh, "It was only 96 hours." It's like, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Uh, you know, and and that that was a a, a huge uh, turning point. Of course, th- uh, by then, um, you know, then I, I had known when I came back that you know the Marine Corps. This is this is what I'm gonna this is what I'm gonna do. I've, I've got you know three deployments, uh, and then you know th- then they're looking at now you got to kind of diversify yourself a little bit. Uh, so when I came back, and I was a did corporal. You, did you guys come back on a ship? How did you guys get back? How did you guys get back uh, we, to America? Because we were the first in, uh-huh. we got to be the first out, and there was a call of all airlines worldwide to come in to pick up troops to get them home. We flew uh, Hawaiian Airlines. Uh, which was, uh, which was pretty banging. Uh, you know what I mean? Being out, being gone for over nine months, you know, total because we were already on deployment mm-hmm. and then uh, got tag you're it, uh, and you know, getting on the on the big freedom birds, and we landed in. Uh, we we flew over. We landed in uh, in Ireland uh, to refuel, and then we landed in Maine. Mm. Uh, and when we landed in Maine, they let us get off the planes, and we all came back in, and we were like the first, like troops back to hit U.S. soil in Maine. And man, the the airport was, the walls were lined with just. It seemed like the whole state of Maine mm-hmm. was at the airport. You know what I mean? Flags. They had tables out, food, and you know uh, the battalion commander. You know what I mean? He's like, meet me at the bar. And you know, we go to the bar. Here's probably not the smartest thing to do when you know you've been sober for nine months, and now we're all going to go to the bar. And uh, but I mean, the people in Maine uh, for them coming out was just huge. Uh, the support that we got uh, coming back after that was amazing. Uh, so we're there. They refuel. They put us back on the on the bird, and you know the 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 stewardess just had to lock themselves away because. You got a bunch of stupid Marines that have had a lot to drink. You know, they got the little no smoking lamps coming on. Dudes are burning cigarettes. You know, there's no shits given. We get down to Cherry Point and the the bands down there. I mean, they're throwing 12 packs and beer on the back of the uh, five tons. We're going back down to Lejeune. Uh, it was a, I mean, it was a great, great uh, homecoming uh, to be able to, to to come back, and it was uh, it was it was phenomenal. Uh, uh, for that experience, um, and then I had to decide of what I'm what I'm going to do next. And uh, yeah, I had a, uh, one of my uh, best friends, Doug Barry. He lives uh, just up the road here in San Diego. Uh, we were uh, together in First Battalion, Six Marines, 
And uh, we both went over uh, to await orders to go to the drill field uh, to b- become a drill instructor. Um, and just because, you know, I mean, the Marine Corps, like the, the DI is a very iconic oh, for sure. uh, figure. But the bigger reason is, is back then, you only had to do two years on the drill field. But if you went recruiting, you had to do three. Well, the only thing I knew was I did not want to be a recruiter. Like that, you know, I, God bless them. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? We've got the school right here at, at MCRD for Marine Corps recruiting. And the guys are great at their job. Uh, you know, the Marines put on the, you know, the uniform, the way they look, the way they recruit. I mean, we can propaganda with the best of them out for there. Sure. And uh, so I, I, I wanted to go do the DI thing, get the funny hat. Uh, plus, it you know it, it would be fun, uh, and and it was. Uh, it was how long? So how long is drill instructor school? It's like three months. It's kind of like you're going through boot camp, but you got rank. Mm-hmm. It, I imagine though they must be like even harder in boot than boot camp in some ways because you got to be so like perfect with everything. Yeah, and it's learning like the 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 drill manual verbatim. Uh, it's the from the mannerisms to just the the, the command presence. They uh, teach you that. They oh, teach! Can they take a guy that doesn't have any command presence and they teach it to him? Oh yeah, I mean you're going to stand out there and yell at a lot of trees. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just like if you ever go down there and you like watch DI school and they're going through DI school, you see dudes like, what is he doing yelling? And they just what at a tree? Well, he's doing what like's called a teach back. Where you have to verbatim, uh, you know what I mean? Like uh-huh. go back through for the the different uh, moves of, of of drill, and then you know from your mannerisms, how you dress, how you look, your professionalism uh, of of coming in is it it is it's a it's a difficult school. The uniforms uh, are just I mean that's next level, <laughs> uh, you know because I wasn't like the best uniform guy, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I wasn't. Like I didn't even own dress blues, like I, because you had to buy them back then if you wanted them. And I was like, why do I want to buy them? You know what I mean? I like the alphas, the the greens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I just had alphas. I never had the blues. They didn't issue them to me. And you know what I mean? I'm I'm cool with that. I didn't join to get dress blues. Um, I joined for the camis and the rifle, free ammo, that kind of stuff. Travel the world. Uh, so when I got there, the, the uniforms were difficult. The PT. Uh, was really good, but it was it was more of the structure of everything that they do to you at DI school. You can use it when you become a drill instructor. So they're going to do stuff to you that then you can turn around and like what, uh, like on the training schedule of like of you know probably the the biggest misconception uh, of, of Marine Corps and and boot camp is everybody thinks it's like hands on. Like you know, oh, you're gonna get beat. They're gonna put their I mean, hands like physically, on. physically. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean, and you learn there that you know, you don't have to hit them to hurt them. Uh, you know what I mean? It's a one arm's distance. Nothing has changed. If if you need to put your hands on somebody, then you've lost leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? If you have to go to the physical force, uh, but you know, just in your mannerism and the shock and awe of just the voice. Uh, can just intimidate uh, people is, is mainly as your voice, the smoky, uh, brings a lot to bear. And then just your physical fitness level, uh, you know what I mean? Because as a recruit, you're like, does this guy like sweat? Like this guy doesn't get tired. I mean, he, these, these guys are just animals. 
uh, and and it is. It's it's a lot of it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of long hours, um, but it is it is very rewarding uh, when when you get the the recruits of coming in, and it's and it's fun because now you're like a live character on Saturday Night Live. I mean, some of the stuff. That's why you got the big smoky. It's so you can drop it so they can't see you laughing because I mean, some of the stuff that you see. That recruits do, you know. I was like, yeah, I'd be with some of the other hats because that's what you call a di hat, and I, you'd be with one of their hats. Was like, dude, there's no way I was this stupid when I was here, and you're like, yeah, you were. You were just as dumb as these kids are that are coming in, and they just do funny. They do funny stuff, and then as as a drill instructor, when when you get these kids on the yellow footprints, and then in a three month period. When their parents come down for graduation and you're marching them up there and it's parents day thursday afternoon at paris island and and all the parents are excited to see their kids excuse me and uh when the parents have to come over and and ask you like which one's mine you know i mean you're kind of looking at them like dude you've had that kid for like 18 years and you don't know which one's yours you know the transformation when they get to go out with their parents the drill instructors get to meet the parents that night uh, when they bring the kids back to the squad bay. And the parents are just like, how did you do this in three months? He's saying, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. He's holding doors open like he's sitting up straight at the table. Uh, you know what I mean? Like what you all did to this to our son is just incredible. Uh, it's a great weight loss program. Uh, you know what I mean? Like folks show up. You know what I mean? They look like a sea bag with lips, chewed up bubble gum and you know what I mean? Three months later, they're fighting lava monsters. I mean, they look like they're you know straight out of three hundred, uh, and so that that's very rewarding of, of seeing some of those uh, some of those kids uh, just and you know in the Marine Corps, man, we then we're going to put that emblem on them for the rest of their life. I mean, they they've they've joined a great institution. Uh, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine. You know, we're going to bring the families in. We're going to mom, dad, they're going to buy the T-shirts, the hats. They're going to fly the flags. Uh, the Marine Corps does a, in my opinion, we do a really good job uh, of bringing in the entire family. Like, you know what I mean? You'll see the stickers on the backs of cars. My my son's a U.S. Marine. My daughter's a U.S. Marine. I mean, we, we my, you know, we got my grandson. I mean, we bring in the whole family uh, to support that kid while he's, you know, to service to country, which is huge. When when you're a drill instructor or you're in drill instructor school, do, are they talking you through sort of like the psychological why behind this aspect of training or this aspect of treatment? Uh, for instance, when I went to OCS, you know, I had Marine Corps drill instructor, awesome guy, um, awesome um, drill instructor, but at some point he, he, he told us stuff at the end, you know, and it was, I, I honestly, I think I was asking a lot of questions cause I wanted to understand better. But for instance, when you get to OCS, you can't look at your food. You, you, you have to, they call it squaring your meals. And I was like, Hey, what, why are we doing that? And he goes, well, that comes from when we, tra- when we used to just train pilots, they had to learn to l- use their peripheral vision so they could see their instruments while they're looking around. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Hey, why do we got to yell everything? Because you got to speak in a ballistic tone, which means you got to yell everything. I'm like, what's the reason behind that? He says, well, you know, we get these young ensigns in here that are going to go on, be be on board a ship. They're going to be on the bridge and they're going to have to give orders on the bridge in a simple, clear, concise manner. They can't be hesitant. They got to think before they say, but then they got to say it with a commanding voice so that people actually hear them and then can execute. 
So there's things going on that there's a pragmatic reason behind. But did they ever break that down for you? For instance, you know, you can go watch on YouTube. You can go watch like the welcome aboard. Uh, not like the first night, but maybe it's the second day where the Marines, they have a very uh, pre-planned script that they're saying about, you know, this is the Marine Corps. This is what we're doing. Do they break stuff down at a, at a, at a psychological level for you? Because what you just said about the Marine Corps doing it very well, I mean, I don't know if there's anyone that does it better than the Marine Corps. I mean, in the world. I don't know if there's any group that has a stronger culture than the Marine Corps that that takes normal human beings from literally everywhere and every strata of the United States of America and sometimes other parts of the world and turns them into this cohesive unit. I don't know if there's anybody that does it better, but... Do they break it down? Do they say, hey, here's the reason why we do this right here? Like even basic SEAL training, you know, they're like, oh, what is Hell Week for? What is it for? And there's people that can answer that question. Well, here's what's going to happen. You know, this is what's, you're going you're gonna to have guys that are going to quit on the second day, and those are the people that blah, blah, And they've done all this sort of psychological background on it. Is there anything like that at the, when, you, when you become a Marine Corps drill instructor that you understand the why or is it just this is what we know works? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with this is this is what works. Uh, but at the same time, everything is done, like you said, you squaring your meals. Like everything is for a reason. Uh, and it's also you know the, when we hand this recruit over to this you know, commissioned officer, it's instant obedience to orders. Like I mean, these guys, they are. I mean, they do it better. Uh, than anybody, uh, for instance, obedience. But when you're talking about like uh, the, the psychological aspects, I, I was also a, I was a swim hat, so I was a marine combat instructor, water survival. So I was a uh, a swim instructor basically for the Marine Corps, and uh, you know uh, because of the the kids that we recruit, like myself, they can't put that marine has something to do with aquatics in it for some reason. Uh, you know what I mean? Like the recruiters don't like let them know that hey, when you oh. get down there you got to swim. I mean, we get, like you said, I mean, we get kids from all over the planet that have never, the largest body of water they've ever seen is the the pool tank at, at Paris Island, South Carolina. I mean, they've never been in a body of water that big. And we don't ask them if they can swim. Like nobody's, you know, yeah. the drill instructor doesn't come out. Hey, anybody not swim? You can stand over here to the side. We just, you know, strap their gear on them. You know what I mean? So give them a rifle, put a helmet on them. They're wearing their boots. And they're all like, you know, A to B right next to the 10-foot the tower. And we're going to give them the, the swim brief. And we're going to take them up on the 10-foot tower and ask them to take a 30-inch step into the deep end and swim 25 meters. And when you're sitting there, look, you know who the recruits are that can't swim because they're probably looking around going, is anybody going to ask? Like nobody there is not going to ask. And when you look at it, we just want to see if, if they're going to step, if they can overcome fear. You know, if an individual can't overcome the fear or trust, I mean, there's a drill instructor in the water waiting for you. Like no one has drowned in this trend, like it, it's, you know, it's the instructors that are there, very professional, very well run. And when you see this, this young man or young woman, you know what I mean? That mounts the tower that knows that they can't swim a day in their life. And, but they're going to trust 
the instructors and, and, and the Marine Corps that the, we're going to take care of you, they just have to step 30 inch step. They hit the water. They come up, you know, they're throwing up stuff from the third grade. They got snot coming out. They're straight to the, they don't even make it even close to swimming at all. They're just a rock in the water. We take them over to the side. We strip them all the way down into their, you know, their, their, uh, their PT shorts and we take them down to the, to the shallow end and we teach them how to swim. You know what I mean? It's a life skill. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing greater than when you're, you know, because, and it's not necessarily, you know, maybe their parents just, we don't know their background, mm-hmm. how they were raised. Like for me, I, I don't remember learning how to swim. I could just swim. Uh, you know, a lot of those kids just don't have that advantage. Uh, and we take them down there to the, to the shallow end of the pool and, and we teach them the survival strokes. And in a couple of weeks, you know, like if they've got different training, they got to come back to the pool uh, and do remediation until we can get them to pass and they can swim. When you see the confidence level in a kid now that he can like swim and he passed that, I mean, this guy's going to go through brick walls. His fear is gone. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing this kid cannot accomplish now. I mean, it's just amazing. You could see it in them. I mean, you know, if you've ever like seen someone, they accomplish something just the, of a small task of like swimming 25 meters. Like it's, really not that big of a deal but to that kid Mm -hmm. huge life-changing event how often what's the attrition rate of marine corps boot camp uh you know how many guys would you lose you know in a what what are you in charge of there a platoon yeah so you got a platoon so you know depending on the time of the year you might have you know between 50 to 70 kids that are in a platoon and you might lose 15 to 20 of them uh, but a lot of them, you know, it's injuries, so they're going to get recycled, recycled out. Yeah, they're just going to get recycled and rolled. Mm-hmm. Uh, they go to what? Like if you come in, like, uh, you know, when you first get down there, uh, you know, and it's n- no offense to recruiters or anything like that, but, you know, the kids are supposed to be able to have completed a, somewhat of a physical test prior to coming so they can at least, like, pull themselves up out of a wet paper bag at least, like, once before they get there. Uh, you know, it's that whole preparation thing. And, and some of the kids, you know, we send them to PCP, physical conditioning platoon, because some of them show up. Yeah. And they're just not not really prepared. And, and when you kind of look at that, it's not really the kid. You know, the, the kid just read a pamphlet. You know what I mean? He wants to come in, and that's somebody's son or daughter. Uh, you know what I mean? That they think that's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And, you know, to be a Marine, I mean, you only got to do three pull-ups. I mean, you only got to run three miles in 28 minutes. I mean, it's not like we're we're banging it, uh, you know what I mean, of like something that's just like incredibly difficult. But to some people, three pull-ups is – that's yeah. the most they've ever done in their life. And uh, so, you know, we've got those. We've got medical rehabilitation platoon. Uh, so if the guys get rolled back, uh, it's very rare. Uh, you know what I mean? Like you can try to drop – I mean, we do drop kids that mm-hmm. get sent off the island, and it's just because they're just not conforming. What about just straight quitters? Like it's cold or it's hot or it's too far. You're going to send them down. Everybody's got like a uh, series commander, so you have an officer to kind of keep a look over what's happening in cell block. Uh, you know what I mean? And they have to go down, and, and they'll get an interview with that uh, you know, a Marine captain. Uh, he's a series commander, and he's going to try to talk that kid into staying. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you know what, man? They're, the drill instructors really aren't that bad. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because it's all a numbers game. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. in the end, the Marine Corps needs a certain amount of numbers. Uh, so he's going to try to talk the kid back in. And that's like a lot of times with the platoon commander or the, you know, the series commanders that you have down there, you're like, 
you got to be shitting me, sir. You're going to send this kid back, man. Like, God, uh, you know, this guy is just, this kid's incredible. And he's just like, you, you just you know, work with him. You know what I mean? Just, you know, leadership challenge. I hate that. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's the last thing I need in the middle of boot camp was my leadership challenge. But in, in the end, I mean, you know, they're, they're, for the most part, one, when you look at it, they're, they're joining the United States Marine Corps. So you look across America, like, who else is joining? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So at least the kid signed on a dotted line, and he's going to come and provide service to his country, which is – that's pretty incredible uh, just in in that aspect. Uh, But some of them just – you know, psychologically, they just – they're not mentally Mm -hmm. tough enough, and they're going to do whatever it takes to get off of that island. And we're going to do whatever it takes to help them (laughs) get off of that island. Uh, You know, it's a – it's a it's a lot of fun, um, but you know uh, the rifle range is usually a, a a pretty big deal. You know, every brain's a rifleman, but you know we're just looking you know marksman. How many can get across the qualification lines? Uh, that kind of thing. So the marksmanship package, you know, it means a two week package down there. I think it's pretty good. Uh, it's a pretty good marksmanship package that the Marine Corps puts on. Uh, you know, for us shooting them back at 500 with, you know, green tip, 5.56, that's not great ammo. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty big accomplishment. Uh, and then, you know, just the, the aspects of when those kids uh, graduate from Paris Island, uh, you know, I mean, they, they look like they're ready to just strap on the world. Uh, in a, in a three-month period, you know, they're really not any tougher than they were three months before when they got there. But their mindset mm-hmm. is different. Uh, I, I would say that that's probably the biggest thing. We just we changed their mindset, mm-hmm. and hopefully, we're making a better product for America. Uh, when the kids go back home, if they get out, uh, hopefully, we're putting a better product back into society after serving in the Marines. And you know, I would say the majority we're doing a pretty good job. But I would say that for pretty much all the armed services, the instant obedience to orders. When do you get uh, the in the Marine Corps? You know, Marine Corps was like we, we already talked about Al Gray and the Enlightenment, the second Enlightenment of the Marine Corps, which is hey, we want people to think, we want to have you know mission type orders and those kind of things. At what point do you go from all right, I'm a robot, I'm going to obey the orders that are given to me to hold on a second, boss? Here's what my thoughts are. Uh, yeah, usually when you're getting the non-commissioned officer, when you step into that team leader role, you know what I mean, and then you're you know you're reading assignment. I mean, uh, usually, I don't know if it's still to to this day, uh, but you know, uh, reading message to Garcia, mm-hmm. uh, you know what I mean, just getting them on those little inches of starting to to think on their own, uh, you know what I mean, and, and not necessarily like everything has to come from a book. Like everything very set in stone, mm-hmm. uh, you know what I mean. So when Al Gray, you know, brings in these, you know, the war fighting publications, yeah, it's starting to it, it's 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 kind of liberating mm-hmm. uh, that you can now. There's not a problem with like questioning authority. It's basically you're not really, you're just asking why. Like, what's the why in it? Like, why are we here? Why are we doing it this way? Is it just because you're telling me to, uh, you know what I mean? Or is there actually some, you know, method to the madness? Um, so I would say, you know, once you get into that team leader kind of role, an NCO, you know, the non-commissioned officer, you know, that's when, you know, we're going to start, you need to start thinking on your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to start taking charge. It's not that instant obedience to orders. And, you know, if you see something that's not right, then 
you know, bring that up and, and you shouldn't be worried about the repercussions of, of questioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, now there are some that don't like to be questioned. So of course, the, you know, there, there's that aspect of it, but that's in, in any organization, any organization yeah. has those kind of jerks. <laughs> <laughs> so you get done with what happens when you get done with your time at drill instructor, you go back to one sex. Yep. Go right back. Uh, first, I didn't want to have to buy new t-shirts and stuff. So I figured, <laughs> Hey man, yeah, I called the monitor. Let's go right back to first battalion, six Marines. Uh, went back there. Uh, and now I'm, I'm stepping into that like platoon sergeant kind of, mm-hmm. uh, thing that the Eli Tucker, uh, of my career, uh, and that, well, that you mentioned to me one time uh, we were talking and you were like, oh, you, some guys had a hard time taking off their D.I. hat, meaning they come from the drill field where they're yelling and screaming and expect to be treated basically like a god. And now they're back in a platoon and it's like they keep acting like that. and It could be a problem. Yeah. I mean, now I don't want, you know, the, the fellow drill instructors out there to take offense. But, you know, a Marine drill instructors, you're just the lowest paid actor. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it is an acting job. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, you, you're putting on a – it's a show. Uh, and someone would be like, you know, oh, they don't agree with that. Well, if I'm like the third hat, you know, I have a certain way that they want me to act as the third hat. If I'm the heavy, uh, you know what I mean, the, the second hat, the J of what What's they call the third it? hat? The third hat, you're like Nick the new hat. You just Got graduated it. from school. Literally, you might as well just get a laundry number and stand with the recruits because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Uh, you know what I mean? It, it, so you just run around and they're like, hey, hey, you know, they'd be like, hey, dog, you, you need to get louder and you need to get faster. Uh-huh. You know, everything that you're doing is not fast enough. It's not loud enough. It's not. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, so you're running around and you're trying to be that that sand flea to where you're just never letting these kids get a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the heavy like the he's the senior green belt uh, in the platoon and he's teaching them everything drill. Uh, teaching them squad bay procedures, you know what I mean? He's very firm. Like, the heavy's the guy that's the most experienced drill instructor. He's the one as a recruit you don't mess with. This guy, he he knows the drill. Uh, he's very good at his job. And then you got, like, the senior drill instructor that wears the black belt. He's like dad. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, he comes in, he hands out mail, he's nicer to you. And these uh, are all stated roles? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, if, if you're like the third hat, like the new guy, yeah. and you're in there like Big Daddy and the recruits and handing out candy to them, yeah, you're not going to go over well with your peers. Uh, you know what I mean? They're, yeah. they're going to, you know, it's that peer pressure of, of how you're kind of, of what role you play uh, in the platoon. Um, so, you know, some of the folks, when, when you leave the drill field and you go back to the fleet Marine force, some of the folks, they, they like, they, they wear that smoky. They want to, they want to wear it in the fleet. And, uh, and a lot of folks are like, look, dude, we're not in boot camp anymore. Uh, and uh, you know what I mean? You need to leave that hat on the Island. Um, but you know, when you do come back and, and, you know, especially with the officers and the senior enlisted, uh, as a as a drill instructor, you know what I mean. I mean, you're bringing um, you're bringing a lot of of, of experience, uh, you know what I mean, and work ethic back to the battalion. You know, my uh, my oldest daughter, she's married to a Marine. He's infantry. Uh, he just finished his. Uh, he was a DI. Uh, you know, of course, he calls me. What should I do next, drill instructor man? You know what I mean. And, and he knocked it out the park, and now he's back at Camp Lejeune. 
Uh, and I, that's the first thing I told him: leave the leave the Smoky, you know, at, mm-hmm. at Paris Island. You know what I mean? There's there's just no place for it. That's not a that's not a leadership style. Uh, you know, it, nobody really responds well to that. Uh, in Other the, than Marine Corps recruits in you know at Paris Island, right? That's yeah. it. That that's it. You know. But then the funny thing is, is like. Uh, you know, after you've been on the drill field, and you, you can't, don't really remember all the recruits that you've had just because there's just a whole bunch of them. So it's kind of hard to, like, keep up. Yeah. But some of them you end up, like, finding out that, it's like, that that kid was in your platoon. And you go over to him, and it's like, hey, man, how come he didn't come over and say anything? You were on a platoon. They're like, dude, I wasn't going to come over and talk to you, <laughs> man. Like, are you, you shitting me? Like, dude, I'm scared to death of you. And it's just like just a regular guy, you know what I mean? But it's that that whole perception and – yeah, you know, everybody still remembers their Marine drill instructors. Uh, it's even me. My Sergeant Williams uh, was my senior drill instructor. I'll never forget that guy. Yeah, and he well, was Motor T. Oddly enough, my my drill instructor I still remember in Officer Candidate School, and his last name was Gunnery Sergeant Seals, which is an interesting coincidence, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, awesome guy. Awesome guy. So you get back to one six, and now you're uh, now you're a platoon sergeant. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm back. I, I was still a sergeant, uh, so I was an E5. Technically, you're supposed to be a, uh, a E6 mm-hmm. uh, to get a platoon, but, you know, they were they were short on those guys, so I, I got a platoon. Uh, and this is what, like 1997 or something like 96, that? Yeah, 96, yeah. I finished, yeah, I finished on the drill field in 95 uh, and came over and right back into 1-6 uh, in, in 96. Um and I was very excited to be back uh, at, at Camp Lejeune. Not that I didn't have a like a, a good time at, at Paris. I had a little bit. You know, as a DI, I had a little run in with a with one of the battalion commanders that was down there, and he thought I was a little overly aggressive. And uh, you know, it was. You know, he he told me that you know, let me tell you what it's like to be a drill instructor. And I was like, well, when were you a drill instructor, sir? Uh, that went over like a fart in church uh, you know what i mean he didn't like that aspect of it and uh so uh, me and him didn't necessarily see eye to eye so when i left paris island they were like you know please don't come back uh but I, it was a lot of fun mm-hmm. uh and then when i got uh, back to the fleet um there was a lot of other guys that you know the, the, the drill instructor community is is very small and it's it's pretty tight uh, and if and if you get back in, uh, one of the company gunnies, uh, his name was Clifford Happy. He was a hat. Uh, so when I came in, you know, I just got more opportunities uh, just because I had that experience of being a drill instructor. Uh, so they gave me a platoon, uh, which I was super stoked with. Uh, and they gave me a uh, platoon commander. Uh, his name Buck Rollins. Uh, his dad was Wayne Rollins, uh, two-star general, mm-hmm. Navy Cross winner, mm-hmm. Vietnam. Uh, great guy. I just attended his funeral uh, a few months back. He was buried in Arlington. Uh, Buck Rollins and I, uh, you know, um, some of the other guys, Doug Zembeck uh, was there at the time. I mean, that battalion, for some odd reason, man, we had some, like, amazing second lieutenants, uh, like, that were just, like, you didn't really see that many great guys uh, that were all in that battalion from – Pascoli to you know uh, you know there was a, a just a bunch of them. A Fredo uh, was in there. It was platoon commanders. Uh, that was my first experience of where you know when you become up up as a platoon sergeant, you get to spend more time with platoon commanders. You know before that, you don't really hang out with the officers like 
at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? But then you become like uh, you're, you're a partner. Uh, you know what I mean? You're going to yeah. work this platoon together. Uh, and I had, you know, I was very uh, fortunate. I had uh, Buck Rollins. I had Doug Zembeck, and I had Doug Olson. These guys were your platoon commanders? Yeah, or- and, I, and I worked uh, with them. Right. Uh, they were the platoon commander, but it's my platoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they just get to hang out. Yeah. Uh, we, they say in the office about the officers and the SEAL teams is like, they rent, we own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the officers rent, we own. Yeah, it's like my, it's like the chief, you know, the, the E-dogs, it's their platoon. The officers just, you know, he's going to be here for a little while, but this is our platoon. Yeah, that's pretty much the exact same thing it is in an, in an infantry battalion. It's 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 the platoon sergeant. It's you know, like I said, I mean, you know, Eli Tucker had a huge effect on me as a as a platoon sergeant, and you know, coming in from the the kids that were in that platoon, uh, and you know, I've stayed in in one six for uh, like three and a half years uh, in the battalion. Did a couple of pumps. I was gonna say, so you do a workup, yep. training cycle. And then go on deployment. Were you riding ships on those deployments? Uh, yeah, uh, riding ships, doing the workup. Uh, we did a med float, uh, which was uh, which was super cool. Uh, we kind of got deployed early. I ended up over in uh, Albania, Toronto, Albania. If you remember, in like the '97 mm-hmm. time frame, they were kind of blowing embassies up yeah. around the. Uh, so we got the call. I was with uh, the 24th, yeah, 24th Mew, uh, and we had just finished up uh, doing workup. And we needed to, they wanted us to go into Toronto, Albania. Uh, so, you know, I got the call. At that time, I had the uh, sniper platoon. Uh, so I had the, the snipers. I uh, took uh, 12 guys. Uh, and, you know, we jumped on C-130s up in uh, Cherry Point with an infantry rifle company. Uh, and they flew us over. We did a refuel, uh, I think, in Singapore, landed in Italy, got on a 53, flew out on the USS Saipan with the 22nd Mew, got briefed in, and we were in country uh, in Toronto, Albania, after they had evacuated the embassies out of there. Uh, and uh, and that was uh, – we, we stayed over there for a couple of months. And so what were you doing? What was your mission? Uh, just uh, basically uh, – running the embassy was evacuated so we so were, it's empty yeah it's empty i mean and they, so you guys are basically doing security on the embassy yep to make sure it doesn't get trashed or whatever or no one comes yep. in and steals shit or yep uh and they i mean they had a lot of, of a lot of other agencies that were over there running around uh you know uh there was some uh, navy seals were over there uh, there was a lot of, of stuff going on. You know what I mean? The overarching was Bosnia. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That whole region at the time. Uh, it was a it was a really good experience, uh, you know, especially for the younger guys that were in the platoon. Uh, the guys that I uh, had in that platoon, uh, even still to this day, I'm still in contact with. Uh, you know, from uh, those guys, that was, a, that was a very special time, those three years at 1-6 at being in that uh, platoon sergeant or what you would call like chief scout kind of role mm-hmm. uh, was just huge. Uh, I learned more about myself uh, then, uh, you know, with, with those folks. And, and just, you know, th- they're relying on me, uh, you know what I mean, to, to train, educate them, take care of them. Uh, it was, a, it was a, really a, a, a really special time in the Marine Corps. Uh, for that that time in service when you went over there were you the senior guy or did you have an officer we had an officer company commander uh company commander we had a and then of course the mew had their some of their mew staff uh that was over there uh sean pascoli was a captain uh that was over there i'm still uh friends with sean um 
uh, those guys, they had a, a company kind of reinforced. So we had some guys that were at the embassy. We had some guys that kind of stayed back, and they were at the housing complex. Uh, you still had State Department folks that were milling about the area. Uh, and, you know, they're just looking for, for bad guys. Uh, we did a lot of time, like, watching. We were basically the snipers. We were overwatch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we had Albanians working gates, stuff like that. You know, we would hire them, uh, and then we would do the overwatch for them. Uh, over at the embassy, it was right next to the University of Tirana. Uh, so it was just a, a, a lot of observing, a, a lot of time observing. But it was the, the same experience for those guys that I got when I was went to Panama. You know, when they issue out the live ammo, mm-hmm. it's just a different game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even though nothing eventful, which I'm thankful for, took place while we were over there. Because, uh, you know, the only thing that would come in, in the back of my mind when I think of, like, being at an embassy is Beirut. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- when you're just blowing stuff up, that's not necessarily warfare anymore. Uh, you know, that's terrorist activities. Uh, that's a, a, you know, and, you know, when you, when you think of the events of, a, of an infantry company, you know, in a barracks, you know, you can't help but think of Beirut. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but luckily we learned from that. The company commander that was there, like we were very well dispersed. Nobody was going to be in one, you know, single point of failure. Uh, the overwatch on the gates, the guards. I mean, it was, there wasn't, you know, the rules of engagement, you know, I, I you know, of what they had to deal with at Beirut, completely different. So obviously, you know, we were a learning organization of we're not going to let this kind of happen again, which was, which was really cool uh, for those guys to, to kind of go through that experience. Uh, and then, you know, once everything was over and, the, you know, the threats were, were pretty much eliminated and gone, they brought the embassy back, ambassador comes back in. And, I mean, people go to Toronto, Albania on vacation, I mean, which is kind of – Kind of funny, uh, you know, even like, you know, people go to Panama now. Uh, it's a great vacation spot. Uh, you know, when I was there, I never thought that, like, who would want to come to Toronto, Albania? Uh, you know what I mean? But they were super nice people, uh, you know, beautiful part of the world, but just different uh, than us. Then what came after that? Uh, after that, I got, uh, went, I attended uh, up at Quantico. I attended the advanced, they used to have an advanced sniper school uh, up at Quantico. So I went through the advanced sniper school prior to that deployment. Uh, and the staff in CIC uh, that was up there, uh, Bill Norton is his name. We call him Max. Um, Max is, uh, he asked me if I wanted to come back up to be an instructor at, at Quantico uh, after that next deployment. And of course, yeah, I was like, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, going up to Quantico. Uh, so he brought me up there as an instructor when I got done. So I was an instructor at uh, Quantico. I took over as the chief instructor uh, for the schoolhouse up at Quantico, which was, I mean, it's a, it was tons of fun. It just, I mean, you know, everybody that shows up, I mean, sniper school, because they do the, we do the basic course, uh, you do the advanced course, and then you do what's called the sniper employment officer course. So the guys that are going to be like in charge of sniper platoons, we put them through a, like a sniper employment package, uh, two week uh, course kind of a thing at Quantico. And I mean, it was just a, it was a lot of fun. Uh, just every day, I mean, the instructors, the students, uh, it's just a, a lot of fun. It's a great package. You know, I mean, the stalking exercises is like fun. You know, I mean, that's like a people should pay money to go do that. Uh, and and then just the you know bury your ass in brass. I mean, you're going to shoot a lot of ammo. Uh, you know, so uh, and and as an instructor at, at that level, 
uh, you know, I was the chief instructor. I expected that all the instructors on the cadre should be able to perform any of the skill sets at any given time. 365 days, you know, when the when the kids would come in to run the physical fitness test, I expected the instructors out there running right along with the students. Uh, you know, that kind of an aspect of, uh, you know, even though we've got mine, you know, a lot of times people, you know, I got mine, let's make it harder for the next guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? The training schedule alone is hard enough. You don't have to. How long is the how long is the sniper course? It's like twelve weeks. Oh, it's freaking no joke. Yeah, I mean it, it's. Uh, you is know, that the sniper course for the whole Marine Corps? That's yeah, it. Well, we've got Quantico, and then you got Camp Lejeune, you got Pendleton. So right up here at Pendleton, they they run the basic course four times a year. And how long is the basic course? It's the twelve week. Okay. Uh, and then they they got rid of the advanced course. Matter of fact, they got rid of the basic course. Like it's all, and I'm sure it's better, like better now than mm-hmm. whatever we were doing. Uh, you know, because uh, we were still back in the probably in the half-cock days, you know what I mean, of the the white feather, you know, the Chuck Mulhaney, you know, we're going to, you know, this stalking and uh, – which stalking is a uh, – I would say stalking is – it's patrolling. Mm-hmm. It's just on the ground. It's a different perspective. Uh, you know, stalking – you learn so much from just laying – with your face sucking the earth of what we call skull dragon. You might be the f- first person that I've heard say stalking was fun. Like most guys that go through the SEAL sniper course, they're like, stalking is not fun. <laughs> I, I would say, because it, it, it's kind of, it's a game. Yeah. You know, you're going up against a guy that's a trained observer and they're on glass. And the ability for you to be able to come into, you know, 200 yards, you know what I mean? Get two rounds off undetected and stalk out. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's a, it's just, a, it's amazing of the ability to hide, blend, and deceive uh, is, is pretty cool. And if you understand how that all works, I mean, you don't even need a ghillie suit. You could be literally naked and, and stalk if you understand how, uh, you know, this, the stalking of blending backdrop, you know, the cover. Uh, so it was, it was a lot of fun. Plus you just get a lot of really good Marines. Uh, we used to get advanced course. We'd have Navy SEALs come through. We'd have army Rangers come through up there. Uh, British Royal commando. We actually have a British Royal on the staff at Quantico. Uh, we have a really good relationship, uh, with the Brits. Um, so it's just a, you know, it's a, it's a fun time when you've got like 24 great Americans, uh, that just want to shoot bolt guns, uh, you know what I mean? And look through glass. It's just a fun time. Uh, everybody's there with a, with a purpose. Like there's not, you know, the leadership aspect is kind of gone. You don't necessarily, you lead by example. Uh, you know what I mean? Like when I'm looking at an instructor, you know, if I walk in on training day one and the instructor looks like a sea bag with lips and the first thing he's going to tell me is how he used to be a badass, uh, you know what I mean? Dude, you're 33 years old. Uh, you know what I mean? Like nobody's old here. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, you know, but in that military, you think of, man, that guy's an old man. You know what I mean? He's 34, brother. Uh, you know what I mean? Like you should be in the prime in your 30s. Uh, so... You know, I always like that about the, the the snipers and even the the reconnaissance school that's up the road up here. I'm sure it's the same with buds. I mean, the instructors that are there, you know, you're just looking at them, and I mean, they just they look the part. They, they better, yeah, yeah. I mean, and they can do anything that they're asking the student to do, uh, which is is a super cool way of that that leadership and then holding yourself accountable to be to being able to uh, to perform at, at any given time. Yeah. So where are you when 
September 11th happens. Is this where you're at? Is this where you're stationed when September 11th happens? Yep. Uh, I'm up at uh, Quantico. That's why I call it. You know, the world changed in nine miles. Uh, we got the students off, and I went. There's a loop uh, up at Quantico over where sniper school is. You can run over by When you TBS. say you got the students off, what do you mean? You cut them loose? No, no, no. Like, they're oh. just, you know, they get them in in the morning. They're going to go to the range. They're going to do an observation exercise. They're going to do, you know what I mean? And there's another instructor that has them. Because, you know, when in, on the instructor cadre, you kind of have to manage your time of, you know, obviously I got to be there when the students are there as the chief instructor. And then we got to get the day going. If I'm on the platform first, or if I'm so, uh, and I always enjoy getting a, a, a run in, you know, throughout the day, get a, get a chance to work out, go to the pool, do something. Uh, so that that day on September 11th, we got you know we got students on deck. Uh, we get them off and going, and and I take off over towards the FBI Academy. So I'm right over there by the FBI Academy and, and the basic school. Uh, and there's a nine mile loop that goes around, and and I, I take off. I, I let the guys know, hey man, I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to run the loop, and they know exactly where I'm going. And I, so I'm I'm off and running. And as I'm making my way in and around over by what they, they have uh, called uh, Lake Lunga that's over at, at Quantico next to the FBI Academy, and I'm coming in, and I'm seeing, like, a lot of aircraft, like, flying around. Yeah, you know, the FBI always has, like, stuff going on. They got mm-hmm. the hostage rescue team that's mm-hmm. there as well. Uh, but then it's just like – Aircraft like helos. Yeah, helos and stuff. Yeah. Like, it's a lot of activity, which is – that. but then all the black vehicles are just leaving the FBI compound. And, you know, because you got to – that's the funny thing about, like, at Quantico, that day before – we used to not have gates. You could literally drive up I-95 and pull off the exit and drive straight on to Range 4 with the sniper students laying right there on the range. And you didn't go through a gate. You didn't – nobody checked your ID card. Nothing. There was just no gates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm running back, and I'm seeing all these vehicles fly out. And by the time I get back to the schoolhouse, it's kind of like, you know, I'm like, what the, what the hell's going on? And – that's when you know they, the Pentagon's being hit. You know, New York 9/11's being hit, and it's just like it, it's it's game on. Uh, and the world changed in nine nine miles. I mean, within a nine mile run, man, the the world completely changed. We had sandbags, barracks. I mean, they're they're manning gates, they're making gates. Uh, I mean, it was it was total anarchy uh, in Quantico. And as, and as you can imagine, I mean, being so close to the Pentagon. Uh, of, of them hitting the Pentagon, they got guys that are coming in. You know, they're wanting to know like how can Marines support? And that that kind of was odd to me that like we didn't have authorization to go out to like help. Uh, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you got all these Marines, you got all these folks. Like why why aren't Marines? Like you know what I mean? Bring the Marines in. Uh, but then you have to look at it as like the event's over. Like you know, what I mean, they flew them into the buildings. You know, we're all thinking like, what's kind of next? Yeah. The, the, that was it. That was the big event. Uh, and you know, after that, then everybody knew at that point in time, it's it, it's go time. Uh, we're you know, and the Marines are, you know, Army. I'm sure with you guys with the teams, like everybody's watching, thinking, yeah, how, you know, when are we going to deploy? When when's the first action going to start coming in? Um, but yeah, I was at, uh, I was at Quantico. So then what, what happens after that? Uh, well, I had, uh, met, met a couple of guys, um, through being up there at a uh, sniper school. 
uh, and there was a, there was a certain unit, um, and I was hoping to get uh, selection into that. It's kind of you know, one of the guys recommended me, uh, so I went in. I went through recommendations, and um, and with that, they needed a, a place for me to kind of hang out uh, and, and await selection, like in the national capital region. So. Uh, uh, John Allen uh, was the commandant of midshipman at the Naval Academy, and I had I had known him from down in the Six Marines, and you know John Allen was like, yeah, hey, I'll, I'll take JD, bring him up to the Naval Academy, and of course I was like, yeah, I'm going to the Naval Academy. Like I'd I'd never been to Annapolis, Maryland, a day in my life. I, I didn't. I mean, I knew the academy, but like my perception of a Naval Academy graduate was Doug Zembeck. Like, that's what I expected. And then my other guy that I worked with at sniper school was John Bradley. Uh, John Bradley was a three-time national boxing champ at the academy. His call sign was big people. Uh, you know, half black, half German. I mean, the dude was like Rambo. Uh, you know what I mean? He's a, I'm still really good friends with John Bradley. He's a great human being. But, you know, I used to make fun of them, like, you know, because he'd wear, like, Navy boxing. And, you know, and, of course, Doug was a Navy wrestler. And I was like, dude, I want my taxpayer dollars back. Like, <laughs> I, there's no way you guys went to the Naval Academy. But that's my perception of the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. You know, the officers that, that I had dealt with were – they come out of the Naval Academy. They were they were top-notch. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was my perception going in. Uh, I can remember when, when I when I went up to check into the Naval Academy, again, I, I didn't know where it was. I just knew it was in Annapolis. So I'm driving around Annapolis. I get over top of the Severn Bridge, and I'm, I'm looking down. But I think that's like it looks like the state capitol. Yeah. And there's like two women that are walking across the bridge. And I'm like, excuse me, ladies, do you guys like know where the Naval Academy is? And they're laughing like, dude, that's it. And I was like, wow, like that's next level. Like I mean, it's it's impressive. Yeah. Uh, so I went down and and uh, and checked in uh, to the academy, and you know John Allen. And, and at first, they really didn't have a job for me to do because like the the, the, the midshipman had already started, uh, and I really didn't know like what I was getting into. Like I didn't know like what they do at the Naval Academy. And your anticipation is that you're waiting to go to selection for a special mission unit, and you're going to be there for six months or something, yep. and then you'll roll out. Yep. That that's my mindset, and and you know, and and John Allen, uh, you know, great guy, wicked smart. I was super excited because the library at the Naval Academy is off the chain. I mean, like it's off the chain, and I, you know what I mean. I I love a library. Uh, you know what I mean. I get the so I mean, there's a lot of history up there. I mean, Tecumseh Court. Uh, you know what I mean? Like they got Tecumseh. You know what I mean? And uh, so it was. It was a, a a bit of a rude of awakening. Like so, the first morning, kind of like you know, this morning I got up. You know what I mean? I'm going to go for a run. So that's how I like to like get myself like situational awareness of like get orientated is is run. So I'll run around. So I'm running around Annapolis, looking at the town and stuff, and I make my way back in, and I'm on Tecumseh Court. And as I'm in Tecumseh Court, I'm standing there, I'm looking. I mean, they got, like, monuments, like, all over the place. I mean, the chapel's there. It's pretty banging. They got, like, a bunch of different poles, and they got Tecumseh. And and I'm looking at Tecumseh. Next thing you know, like, there's this, this Navy officer. He's like, hey, you, hey, what are you doing? And I wasn't wearing anything that said Marines on it. And he's like, hey, you're not allowed to be out here in PT gear. I was like, 
am I not on a military installation? Like what the Navy, we don't like to PT and you don't want us to say like it was like it was odd, like the rules that they had there uh, at the academy. And, and, you know, John Allen sent me over with the football team. Where couldn't you be with a, with PT uniform on? I, I don't know. They didn't like PT gear being out there in Tecumseh Court, like where they do. So like specifically the, Tecumseh yeah, Court? It's, yeah, it's like a, I guess it's a ceremonial area. Like Got you're it. supposed to be, like in the Marine Corps, like everywhere is a PT area. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like you can PT wherever you want. You know what I mean? Like I'd never been told, don't be out in front of people in this area in PT gear. Uh, so that that was kind of odd, and then uh, you know, so I went over with the football team because uh, at first I was like, oh, you know, college football, and I asked the coaches like, hey, is this like open practice? Is it cool if I watch? You know what I mean? And they were like, yeah, dude. You know what I mean? You can come over and watch. And it was Coach Paul Johnson at the time, uh, and the strength coach and stuff. And I went over there, and uh, you know, the, the kids on the on the football team, uh, I would say, um, yeah, I felt out of place. At, at the Naval Academy, like like I didn't belong. Like there's no Marines in the brochure, mm-hmm. and there's definitely no Marine gunnies in the brochure. Uh, there were other gunnies that were there, but like you said, I mean, I was there. I, I just come from sniper school. I have a I had a, a different outlook uh, than a lot of the other folks. Uh, and so when I was over there, like the, the the midshipmen on the football team, like they they immediately came over and. Started talking to me, asking me, you know, like, hey, who are you? What are you doing? Because I wasn't in uniform. And I was like, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm Gunny. And that's how I introduced myself to, like, Coach Paul Johnson and them. And I think, like, because the coaches aren't military. So I think they thought, like, my first name was Gunny. <laughs> and still to this day, they call me Gunny, you know, which I don't care. Uh, you know what I mean? It's uh, and, and the football players, and, man, I got to stand out there and watch some of these kids that are going to compete on Division One level. Uh, and they joined the the academy with not really a lot of hopes of, of going to the NFL, um, but the, the the kids on the team uh, and and the athletes that are there at the academy, the midshipmen are. I mean, they're just they are really good people. Uh, you know, they're, I, I look at them just like they joined. They just read a different brochure than I did, and obviously <laughs> scored like way higher on the SAT because I never took that test. Uh, you know what I mean? But they, they were like really, really good kids uh, at the academy. Um, and uh, I, I just had a, a phenomenal uh, experience being there with the, the midshipmen. Uh, they, they, they welcomed me with open arms. The midship, I had more fun. So what job did you actually get assigned? I ended up being a senior enlisted advisor for 30th Company. Uh, and So there's how many companies are there's there? There's 30. Okay. Yeah, and obviously 30th Company had like a bad rap before I got there, you know what I mean? So they had them living on zero deck right next to the Bato, the battalion officer. Well, the battalion officer was a guy named Alan Eschbach. Uh, and Alan Eschbach, great guy, went to Millersville State uh, up in Pennsylvania, ran cross country, and he was a Navy captain. And I had never really been around a Navy captain. Uh, you know what I mean? Not a lot of them. You know, the, I didn't interact with the ship's captain when I was – he didn't come down to cell block and hang out and slap spades. Uh, you know, so uh, Alan Eschbach, he'd see me up running, uh, you know what I mean? And he, he ran cross country. He was a, a surface warfare officer. He had the Arleigh Burke. 
Uh, you know, you end up taking over the San Jacinto. Uh, and, you know, I, I already kind of mentioned my kind of like being a ship's captain has got to be like a cool job. Well, so Alan started coming running with me in the morning. And, and he lived right there on the yard. And, like, these, these battalion officers, the houses that they get on the Naval Academy are pretty banging. <laughs> and he would have me over for dinner and stuff. I got to know his wife, his kids. I mean, he was just a super nice guy. And, uh, and so I ended up having this relationship with this, this, Navy, this Navy captain. Uh, and he was just a great guy. We'd be really good friends. And we're still friends to this day. Uh, and he was about ready to roll out to go take over the USS San Jack. And as he was leaving, we were getting a new battalion officer coming in. And he's like, hey, he's like, J.D., is there? Which was kind of cool. The captain would call me J.D. Um, and, and he was like, hey, he's like, uh, is there anything I can do for you, like, before I leave? And I was like, yeah, can you move 30th Company up to 8-4? So it's the highest point at the Naval. Nobody goes to 8-4. Plus, the midshipmen that have to walk the class every day, they're going to have to walk all the way to 8-4 like every single day. And the, you know how the midshipmen have to chop? They call that chopping where they like run and say, go Navy, beat Army. And they, did you see them when you were no. up there speaking? Like they do this is that, chopping. Is that punishment or is that just standard operating procedure? Just standard operating procedures. Like I didn't know what they were doing. Like wait, just when you're going from class to class, every time you square a corner or something, you got to say like "Go Army, Go Navy, Beat Army," something yeah. like that. Yeah, and they, they call it chopping, so it's like they're running and they're in dress shoes, which makes absolutely mm. no sense. But sense is kind of thrown out the yeah, window. Yeah, sense is thrown out the window. So I'm watching these kids like, and they're calling it chopping, and I'm like, hmm, interesting. Uh, you know what I mean? Go Navy, beat Army. Okay, I got it. So that's a lot of chopping to get up to the top of eight four. Uh, you know what I mean? So, and then I knew nobody would come visit me. People are just lazy. You know what I mean? Like nobody's going to come up to eight four. I'm going to live up on eight four. It's going to be great. Uh, so yeah. eight four is a building. Yeah, eight four. It's like Bancroft Hall. Like when you saw Bancroft, mm-hmm. I was all the way in the very back. Uh, so I was the farthest away from Tecumseh Court as possible, and I was the closest to the football locker mm-hmm. uh, as possible. And you know, I mean the uh, the athletes and the and being assigned up there. Um, I, it was a great place to be uh, as a as a senior enlisted um, because, like, I'm not teaching these kids. Like, if you're an officer and you got to get – like, I was there with Randall. Uh, Lieutenant Randall was there. Uh, you know what I mean? He was a company officer. And, like, company officers have to, like, teach stuff. Like, they got to go over to academia mm-hmm. and teach double E. Or they got to, like, do stuff. I'm not teaching double E. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, they're not going to – all I got to do is, like, just hang out you know like a mean? full-time mentor yeah and hang out and just be there for the kids if they need anything and and uh and i work with a navy lieutenant great guy uh it, it was a lot of fun but i mean so when the kids go to class it's like you got nothing to do but you've got an olympic pool you've got batting cages you got football cages you got an indoor track you got a sailing center you got soccer fields you got a rifle team you got like Dude, I didn't. It was at camp. I mean, I literally, it was. I was back at camp, except like they have like the best facilities, like known to man. Like I'd go out and throw BP for the baseball. I'd go out and do you know batting practice, and I'd just get to know the kids. Uh, you know, that were going through, and if they had questions about you know joining the Marine Corps and stuff like that, and then especially with the football team. Uh, the one thing that I learned there is like you know the football players don't have to do like the 
the Friday parades and they get out of a lot of other stuff. They do their own meals and stuff. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of folks that don't understand what it takes to compete at division one level football. Uh, you know what I mean? Like do they, other athletes get out of that stuff too? No, not like football gets out. Uh, and I wouldn't really what about say, the wrestlers. No. Soccer players. No. So it's just football. Yeah. They, I mean, the other like the other sports teams. If they've got a game, they'll get out of something. But like football is is looked at. I mean, is looked at differently uh, at the academy. And then you're hiring a coach like Coach Paul Johnson. I mean, he came from Georgia Tech. Great guy. He's the highest paid guy in the Navy. <laughs> like this dude makes more than the CNO. This is like the head coach at Army makes more than the chief of staff of the Army, which kind of puts stuff into perspective. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, well, wait a minute, man. Like, I can make more money being the head coach at Navy oh, than crazy. the CNO. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, like this dude's driving a nuclear submarine. Uh, you know what I mean? But the football coach, and it's just like, you know, Ken Nehemiah that's there right now, great guy. He was an O-line coach when I was there. And the coach is just doing a job. They get hired to do a job, compete at the Division One level, pack the stands, and the football team, because of the the amount of money that they make, you know, at stadiums, ticket sales, stuff like that, pays for a lot of the other sports programs to be able to take place. Yeah, it's got to be recruiting too. They probably take recruiting budgets, probably paying that coach's salary. Yeah. So, uh, and the coaches are great, and the kids that they get on that football team. I mean, you know, people are like, oh, they get out of the Friday afternoon herd across the grass. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, really? <laughs> They're up at 5 o'clock in the morning. They got to watch films. They got tapes. They got practice. They got weights. They got, I mean, they have to perform, you know what I mean, on Saturday. You know, their weekends, their Thanksgivings, if they get a bowl game, you know, what they sacrifice to be able to play Division One football and then go serve their country just like everybody else. So they're just there on a different aspect. I think some of the folks just don't – they don't look at it that way. But the student athletes at the academy are phenomenal. Uh, they're just – one, the team players, you know what I mean? Like if, if you leave a team sport uh, from the academy and, and join the Marine Corps, it's a very easy transition because you know, you're just leaving one team mm -hmm. and you're just joining another team. Uh, and the, the athletes transition really well into the Marine Corps. Um, and, you know, I just think that the, the kids that were on the team, I mean, they I had, like, a lot of fun uh, with those kids. And then, you know, some of them, when they select Marines at the end of the year, you got, like, O-line guys, you got defensive line guys that have never run farther than 100 yards in their life. And now it's the end of football season. And, oh, hey, by the way, you got to meet height and weight standards mm -hmm. by May. Yeah, that's, uh, that's hard for some of the guys that go to Bud's. You know, they got to, like, totally change their physique. Like they got to become a different kind of human being. Like I got one friend that was, uh, yeah, at the Naval Academy, played football, and I don't want to say his nickname, but he's a big guy. Uh, and even when I know him, he's a big guy, like a like a big guy. But apparently, I didn't know him when he played football. But he had to like change who he was as a human being <laughs> to get from playing whatever freaking lineman at the Naval Academy to go and run, you know. 12 miles and four miles and six miles and you know like all that running it's just a totally you're a different human yeah so that's a challenge yeah and then you got to teach them how to run like you know mm -hmm. it's some of them just they don't i mean there's a big difference between sprinting 100 yards and running three miles yeah 
And then, oh, by the way, you're going to go to TBS. You know what I mean? Especially if they go to Marines. But even if they're, if they're, if they're going, you know, surface warfare, going there, I mean, that's a big transition uh, for a lot of those guys uh, that are out there. And, uh, you know, and I would run them in a mile and a half. The only thing that I could do, my biggest shock when I was at the academy uh, was, like, I was talking to some of the uh, midshipmen. One of them was, uh, was Jason Copeland. He's a Marine lieutenant colonel now. He's an infantry battalion commander. Great human being. Uh, so Jason, I was like, hey, what's, what do we guys got going on tomorrow morning? Like, you guys got your physical fitness test, I heard. Because I didn't know, like, what these kids did. And he's like, yeah, we'll meet out by the uh, by the Farragut. And, you know, the PT department takes care of, of the, the physical fitness test. And they run the PRT. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, what is it? You know what I mean? Okay, well, we do, you know, push-ups, sit-ups, and then we do a mile-and-a-half run. I was like, okay, that's cool. What time do you go? I, I, I'd like to come out. Well, most of the staff there are like, why? It's, it's early in the morning. Like, why? Why are you gunny? Why are you? You don't have to go. I was like, well, I know I don't have to go, but I should go and run with the kids. So I, I, I showed up, and they do each battalion. So there's six battalions, and each battalion gets a day, and they show up, and there's you know five battalions and or five companies, and each battalion they're going to run five physical readiness tests. So I, I show up and, and I, you know, they're only going to run a mile and a half. So, you know, so for me, I was like, well, I, you know, I asked the PE guy, like, do you, do you care if I like run with them? Am I allowed to run with them? You know what I mean? Like I'll, I'll do a 1030 pace and just run along and, you know what I mean? Kind of give the kids a, an earmark of like mm-hmm. where I'm at. Cause I used to do that at sniper school. Like if I, I'd run the three mile and I'm like, Hey, I'm going to run right at a, of what is a 2030 pace. So for three miles, I'm going to run it in 20 minutes and 30 seconds because that's worth 85 points. So if you see JD, he's worth 85 points. If you're in front of me, you know what I mean? Because it's all the numbers game. Mm-hmm. If you're not good at pull-ups, you better bank it on the run. If you're not, you know what I mean? So it's your strengths and weaknesses. So I was like, you know, and I was like, okay, this is the Naval Academy. Like it's only a mile and a half. You got to do it in 1030. That's a seven-minute pace, man. It's pretty easy. Man, I, so – as I'm out there and I'm watching the kids and I'm running along with them, you know, kind of going along and I'm like, Hey, where, where, where are these guys going? Like they're falling out. Like where it's only a mile and a half and they're falling out. And I was just like, well, they, they failed. Like they didn't pass the run. So I go over to the PE department and I'm kind of like, so what happens to these kids, man? They like pack their shit. They done. And they're like, oh, no remediate. You know what I mean? They're going to remediate the hell out of them. Uh, and, and I always thought like, well, this is something that I could help out. You know, I can I can come out and run with these kids, and uh, so I used to go run when they do the PRTs for the for the brigade of midshipmen. Mm-hmm. I would run thirty of them back to back at a ten thirty pace, and I was like, yeah, you know, only five a day though. Oh, okay. So yeah. you know what I mean? It's yeah. really not that hard. It's only like eight eight and a half miles. You know what I mean? So and and for me. I'm not a runner. I just have a running problem. Uh, you know what I mean? So for me, like that, that seven minute pace was, you know, that, it's a pretty good workout for me. I'd come out and I would run with the kids and kind of, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, kind of help them and push yeah. them. Like if they're going to fall back, this is something that I can actually, you know, help out with the Naval Academy. If there's a kid struggling with a mile and a half, I can help him out and get him to pass so that, you know, because once he goes to the fleet and he's in the Navy, that's not a requirement. 1030 is not a requirement in the fleet. It's just a Naval Academy requirement for officers. Uh, so, but hopefully, yeah, so uh, I used to do that uh, with the kids and I would get excited, uh, you know what I mean, to go out and run the, 
the PRTs uh, with the midshipmen because, I mean, it was hysterical uh, just, you know, watching them for that uh, mile and a half. How is the uh, the psychological molding of the guys or the people or the kids that are going to the Naval Academy compared to what you saw at boot camp? Well, it's, uh, yeah, there's, there, it's, it's the country club. Uh, yeah, I would say it's kind of like being a Catholic school and you're just a nun. You know what I mean? You're a nun. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, yeah, it's night and day. You know, they do, uh, plebe summer, uh, that's there, but it's the, it's the, the upper class are kind of running plebe summer and they, they do a, I mean, they do a pretty good job. Right. But they're not drill instructors. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They're not smoking it out. They're not, you know, the, the shock and awe isn't as much. But uh, they, they, do a, they do a pretty good job with them at, at, uh, at plebe summer. And, you know, and being a plebe at the Naval Academy, to me, was like, dude, that just does not look like fun. Yeah, it looks awful. <laughs> like, uh, at all. One, I got to say, go Navy, beat Army, and chop around the place in my dress shoes. Uh, you know, I, no liberty. I, I don't get to really do anything. I, I, you know, uh, the knowledge that they push on those kids there, though, and the, and the education level is phenomenal. And then I would say, like, the, the, the camaraderie of, of, the, of each class uh, is just it's outstanding. Uh, with the Naval Academy of, of bringing those kids together, you know, sharing in, in this in the suffering together uh, all four years at the academy. Uh, but it is a it's a great institution, and they put out a a great product. In my opinion, uh, probably the the best to watch was uh, the ones that wanted to go special warfare, Navy SEALs. Uh, that was the most. While I was there, uh, you know, uh, Randall was a lieutenant. Uh, and he kind of ran that uh, pre-buds kind mm-hmm. of selection process it's there. It's a tight selection. Oh, it is the most compa- – I mean, he's got like a couple hundred kids that want to be – I mean, there's only a 1,000 of them. Yeah. And a couple hundred of them want to become a SEAL. Yeah, and there's like 15 billets, yeah. something like that, 15 slots. Yeah. And Yeah, I've been – it's been, always been cool. Uh, I've done – during COVID, I did some um, some – Virtual training with the with the midshipmen. I've gone there live. It's been awesome to go up there live and and just you know talk about leadership from my perspective. And they're definitely stoked on it. Very cool. But yeah, that competitiveness for the seal billets in any whether you're ROTs in the, any of the officer seal billets is it's hard, it's very very difficult. Probably well because the recruiting because so many people want to go into to that job and it's a rough job to get into. Yeah, I would say, yeah. Uh, I, but what those kids would, you know, the thing that, that I learned while I was there, it was kind of disappointing uh, for me being a Marine, um, was the the Marine selection. So you would have like, you know, I mean, let's say you got 100 kids that put, they want to go Navy SEALs as their number yeah. one choice. And then Marine ground as their second. And you would have Marines that were up on the yard going, well, that's bullshit. Yeah. You know what I mean? If they're not Marine first, we don't want, I'm like, these kids are going after, like if, if JD was there, yeah, I, who wouldn't, it's the Naval Academy, man. Like, I mean, they want to go Navy SEAL. They're going to compete for the hardest billet going. Yeah. You know, at least physically. Yeah. That's actually another way to look at it is, Hey, these guys want the hardest possible job and they're trying to get in the heart, the, the most selective thing. So, they're taking the most selective thing. That's the seal billet. If they don't get that, yeah, because that is horrible. And I had, a, I've had a bunch of friends, you know, that graduated from the Naval Academy that had to make that call, and it's so hard. I mean, Leif didn't get selected out of the 
Naval Academy. Right. Seth didn't get sacked out of the Navy. And they both went to, you know, a ship. And that's a different personality type that is going to be a, a ship, a swell. It's a, different, it's a different type of mindset than someone that's going to be some kind of a land soldier, you know, whether it's a Marine or a special operations guy, it's a different type of mindset you have to have. And so both, I forget, I have to ask Leif again, but you know, he got told the same thing. He's like, Hey, there's, it's, it's a waste to put Marine Corps after seals. Cause you're just not going to get taken. And Leif, you know, would have loved if he didn't make it in the seals, but you know, he probably would have gotten picked up for the Marine Corps and probably would have never joined the SEAL teams and the Marine Corps would have had a cool officer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of, like, I knew a lot of these kids. Like, yeah. they would come out and, like, because I would run every morning at 5. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I, I'd go run and, and, uh, and I ran a lot. Like, they had a marathon team that was there at the academy. So, like, I became, like, the O-rep for them. So, like, the Naval Academy would, like, fly us around. So, I mean, we're doing Chicago. We're doing Boston. We're doing Disney. Uh, you know what I mean? Like with the midshipmen and, and, you know, and if they knew that like midshipmen can't leave the yard, but if they're running with me, then they're allowed to just say, hey, I'm with Gunny. You know what I mean? And they right out the gate and we'd go run through town. So they're not just doing like mm. outers around the academy and stuff. And, uh, and you would see just the commitment that those kids had that are trying to compete for those billets to include the EOD billets. Uh, as well that are coming out as a you know as a naval officer to get those billets are very hard to get uh and for us to like miss out on some of those guys and gals that okay that's great that they put navy seal or whatever for the first choice they want marine second choice like they're going to be good yeah. like you know what i mean like that and they let me sit in on one of these selection boards which was very i'd never been on an officer selection seal board. selection board no 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 or marines like, oh, okay and everybody's got, like, these little hidden buttons, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, of whether or not, like, you want to vote, like, yes or no, which I kind of thought was bullshit that we're kind of hiding the button. Uh-huh. Like, dude, you can put my button right out in front of everybody. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> nope, don't like that one. Everybody can see, you know what I mean, that, oh, J.D. doesn't like him. Nope, don't like him. Uh, and, you know, we had this uh, this this one kid, and he's a nice he's – he was a nice kid. Um, but there's a lot of nice kids that shouldn't be a Marine officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, this, this guy, like – we're in there, and Colonel Inman was the senior Marine uh, on the yard at the time. He, uh, and, and Colonel Inman, great guy. Went to the University of Oklahoma. Uh, just a phenomenal guy. And he's the one that had me in there. He's like, yeah, hey, J.D., we'd like your input. You know a lot of these kids. You know what I mean? I was like, okay, yeah, cool. I, I've, I've never been in here before. Uh, so I'm sitting there looking, and they got to show a picture, and somebody's going to brief their package kind of thing. And, and then you do the little hidden vote. And then, you know, they see on the board, okay, yeah, this guy got enough votes. He's going to go in the go pile. So he's just going to go in the go pile. They got this one kid that that, uh, that they put up on there. And I'm like, oh, this guy, nice kid, sea bag with lips, man. <laughs> like, TBS is going to crush him. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, he's the, the, the heart's there. It's just, you know, he's just – He's not going to work out as a Marine officer. Uh, you know what I mean? He doesn't put the – he doesn't have the self-discipline. So, of course, I hit the no, and he goes to the go pile. So I'm a little shocked. So I was like, excuse me, sir, like, can, who who voted for that guy? <laughs> like, does anybody here, like, know him? Like, no shit, like, you know the guy. Like, I've seen him out there on the remedial physical fitness field, you know what I mean, trying to pass a 1030. Like, it, it, I looked at it as if if we're going to stamp a kid with the little N star from the Naval Academy, we're going to send him down to TBS, 
then all of my peers that know that I'm at the Naval Academy are like, oh, this is JD's guys. You know what I mean? I don't want JD's name on this guy because he's not going to fare well when they do the physical fitness aspects. And he's like, well, I mean, it's a, it's a, yeah, we don't disclose who's voting. And I was just like, I mean, I'm being serious. Like, does anybody know this kid? Like, I know this kid. Like, he's, we're setting him up for failure. And basically, Colonel Emmon says, well, JD, he's, he's legacy. And I'm like, okay, well, that's a new one. What, what's, what's legacy? Well, his dad was a Marine officer. So then I was like, okay, so we're getting flounder. Remember in Animal House when, you know, they, they took <laughs> flounder because he was legacy? I was like, so we're going to get flounder in the Marine Corps because of legacy. I, I thought that was kind of – I mean, my dad scouted Major League Baseball. Do I get in just because of the legacy? You know what I mean? Like that shouldn't – that was a – that was a little bit disappointing to see that. Yeah, I mean, that I, should not play a role. It shouldn't play a role. If I, anything, I, they should be harder on him. You would think. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, but other than that, uh, you know, I got the coolest coolest thing happened to me while I was there. I was, I was coming out uh, football practice. It was a uh, class of two thousand uh, year of two thousand five, uh, and a couple of the football players were like, "Hey, they were like, Gunny, hey man, you're going to graduate with us." I was like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm going to graduate what, in like physical fitness. You know what I mean? Like they're giving me a PE award and stuff. He's like, nope. We voted you to be our honorary graduate and graduate with the class of 2005. And it's it's voted by the midshipmen, uh, which was like that's that was the coolest. That's the coolest thing I've ever. What kind of people do they normally vote for that? Not gunnies. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I did a little bit of like it's normally like some professor or some other officer, mm-hmm. uh, you know what I mean, kind of of a, of a thing. You know so you're class of 2005. Class of 05. Love them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I just went to a Marine Corps ball with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Adam Horn. Uh, he's got a 53 squadron down at uh, Cherry Point. And when he became the squadron CO, he, he called me. And he's like, hey, you know, hey J.D., I, I want you to be the, the guest speaker at our ball. I'm like, you know what I mean? He goes, I'm finally in charge, and I get to pick the guy coming. And I was like, dude, you, I was never, like, in the air wing. Don't give two shits. You're coming. He goes, because, you know, and, and when I was down there with him, I mean, it came for He's like, I, I joined the Marines because of this guy. You know, and, and it was great for, one, for the enlisted Marines that were in his squadron to see an enlisted Marine having a relationship with their CO. Mm-hmm. That, like, that we can be friends, man. Like, we're, we're on the same team. Like, you know. It's it's a it's a, a great organization and, and and great to be a part of and uh, then after that I got accepted into the alumni uh, with the Naval Academy they allowed me in the alumni uh, so I'm an alumnus uh, with the Quantico chapter oh, man. Uh, yeah Look which is it was like a ring knocker did you get a ring uh, no I didn't well I got three of them I got three bowl rings uh, with the football team uh, wow. yeah I, I did that. Uh, I'm really not a, a, a ring guy. I had thought about it. Uh, you know, some of the folks at the academy were like, "Yeah, man, we got to get Gunny a ring." Uh, you know what I mean? And and uh, but I tell you what, uh, that experience at the Naval Academy, I mean, uh, was was phenomenal. Uh, I I can't say enough. I mean, every every organization has has problems, uh, but you know, for what those midshipmen do and for for what they give, you know, they're getting a four year education and, and the service that they give back. Uh, and what the, the some of the shit they got to put up with up there? Yeah, they're gonna say they make they make them pay for that free yeah, education, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they're, they're paying for it, but they're like, I mean, they are quality Americans. Uh, that are, and that's all the the uh, service academies. Yeah. I, I would say. I mean, they're just a 
a great group of individuals and i i mean i had a complete ball at the academy yeah no it's it i've i've gone to west point and talked to them i've gone to the air force academy and talked to them it's just yeah very cool very cool uh thing to look at what happened with the special mission unit you were going to select for uh well uh that, that in 2003 um so they have what they call, uh, it's a leatherneck program where they take the midshipmen that want to select Marine Corps uh, their junior year and they take them to Quantico. Uh, because Give them a little taste. Yeah, because they're the only, like the Naval Academy doesn't have to go to OCS, um, which call it what you see, but that is a little bit of contention. I mean, you know, uh, OCS... Uh, yeah, I think they you know they say, oh well, we went to Plebe Summer. Well, guess what? Plebe Summer is not Marine Corps Officer Candidate School. Uh, yeah, as you know, it's not even Naval Officer Candidate School. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'm. I, you said I know. I don't know. I know that Marine Corps OCS or sorry, Navy OCS was was cool and uh, good indoctrination for me. I don't know how it compares to Plebe Summer or whatever. I don't know. But yeah, I'll take your word for it if you say it's not quite the same thing. Yeah, it's. Uh, it's, I can tell you, I'd rather go through OCS than four years of Naval oh, Academy as any far day of the as week. just like grind. Yeah, any day of the week. Uh, you know, so like the the Marine OCS. So you know, it's just like with anything else, they're going to show up at TBS, and you know, oh, I had to go through OCS, and and you guys didn't have to go through OCS. There was a lot of midshipmen that wanted to go through OCS because they had heard, you know what I mean. And I was just like, look, guys, you know what I mean. So you don't go through OCS. Whoop the shit. Yeah, you know what I mean? You've had four years at the academy. Some of the folks that do go to OCS, they went to a regular college. They didn't have to put up with a lot of the crap that you guys are having to put up with uh, while you're here. You know, you had to do summer cruises. You're competing for the ability to be a Marine officer, which is pretty cool. Uh, so we take them down to TBS, uh, and they call it Leatherneck. Uh, we call it Purging the Squid. Uh, just because, you know, I mean, the Naval Academy is set up as a surface warfare officer school. I mean, that's that's what it is. You're making surface warfare officers. Uh, and there's no Marines in the brochure. So we take them down there and we you know put them through a, a little bit of, you know, the land navigation, a little bit of the field skills stuff, a little bit of the fire team and squad patrolling kind of thing. And then they've got, uh, you know, Marine officers and they've got second lieutenants that just graduated TBS that work with the midshipmen. And they do evaluations on some of these kids to see how well they play with others. Uh, you know what I mean? How serious they how are. How long is Leatherneck program? Uh, Leatherneck is, man, that's a good question. It might be like four to six weeks. Mm -hmm. It's really not that long. Mm -hmm. uh, but neither is neither is OCS. Um, so they, they come down and they run through the Leatherneck program. And I got sent down uh, to, to Quantico um, to one, I, uh, at first, there was a lot of contention because people were like, oh, you got to do plebe summer. Everybody comes here, you got to do plebe summer. And I was like, well, General Allen said I didn't have to do plebe summer, and I'm going down to Quantico. What, just go watch plebe summer, basically, or like, monitor it? Yeah, like monitor it, work it as a senior enlisted. You know what I mean? It's kind of like you know indoctrination of being okay. a senior enlisted. Uh, I, you know, there was, a, there was some cool guys that were up there at the academy, but I really wasn't into the whole – chief's mess mm -hmm. kind of thing like i didn't want to go downtown annapolis and do a pub crawl and you know that kind of stuff mm -hmm. uh so i didn't mix well uh with some of the other i got along with a lot of the folks fine i just i didn't mix as well uh with a lot of the others uh, some of them had that us versus them mentality us 
like us, the the commandant staff, staff versus, versus the, the midshipmen. The midshipmen. Like, let's sit around and see how much we can like make as miserable. Like, dude, these kids got it miserable enough, man. <laughs> and they're here, and just because they're coming to the academy, and yeah, it's a good gig. I mean. They get a lot of cool stuff at the academy. You know, they got like a silver spoon coming out of every orifice of their body. <laughs> I mean, you know, who else gets to go on like summer camping trips and you get to go with like an air wing unit, you get to fly over. I mean, they do some cool stuff at the academy. And I think it's just jealousy of, you know, there's a lot of chiefs, gunnies, or, you know, uh, that didn't get that opportunity and they just want to stick it to the midshipmen as much as they can. And, you know, and, and like, like what they call like frying them, like basically like an NJP, but not NJP, they call it a fry. Well, all that's going to do to that kid. I mean, so the kid did something stupid. I mean, they're kids. Mm-hmm. That's going to hurt their order of merit. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, unless they're doing something like grievous, yeah. uh, you know what I mean? Like, like, come on, man. Like, you know, the kid was, you know, he's, he's a kid. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I think some of the folks forget that, that, you know, they didn't want to see JD when he was 18 and 19. Uh, and uh, so, you know, those kind of fucks, the, those us versus them mentality uh, of, of with the midshipmen. And I, I tell you what, the, the midshipmen, they made my experience at the academy enjoyable. If it wasn't for them, uh, it wouldn't have been as fun. Like, I had a ball. So I ended up down at Leatherneck for the summer, and they were going out to do some munitions. And, you know, CQB stuff, you know, coming in, doing mount uh, at the mount facility there. And, you know, a couple of the guys, uh, well, the XO that was in charge, the major uh, that was down there, uh, his call sign was Pedro. He was a pilot. Great guy. Uh, Major Brown, uh, and he's like, hey, why don't you come out, man, and, and play some munitions with the midshipmen while they're kind of taking them through the mount facility. I was like, yeah, I'm there. Like, I love doing some munitions in mount. I mean, it's fun. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so we're up there, and, and I ended up getting up in the third story uh, in one of the rafters uh, in one of the buildings, and I'm making my way through uh, the rafters, having a ball, shooting midshipmen. Yeah, sniper. Yeah, I mean, just – and I'm slick. So I got no helmet oh, on. Right. Yeah, I got nothing. I'm just I'm having a ball. It's a great day, um, and then beams break. And I came out of the out of the third story, fell three stories, and uh, just hit like a sack what, of the beams break of the rafters that you're in. Yeah, you know how like the rafters are. Yeah, when you when you go back and look at the raft, they were you know it's government. Mm-hmm. They were just put in with like long staples. So the rafters weren't, but necessarily like uh, for me to get, they were kind of like, how did he even get in the rafters? Because like when you went to the third story, there was just like a, a, a cutout. Like, you know, you got like a um, like a fake ceiling, like kind a of. fake ceiling with the little cutout like you have in some people's garages. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And you can push up and put a ladder in and mm-hmm. put storage. So I just ran and hit the wall, jumped up, grabbed, pulled myself up and got up into the rafters. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I got up there. Uh, and then once I was up in there, I was coming out and turkey peeking, trying to figure out where the midshipmen were moving around in the town and uh, put my hand down. Boom, gone. Rafters came out and I came down three stories. Uh, how like, come you went down three stories and not just falling from? Because you know how like the mount has like a building that looks like it's blown off. Yeah. Yeah. So there was nothing there. Oh, okay. So I, I'm out. And, uh. Yeah, hit went down the the hit with the left shoulder and then just down the left side of the body. Uh, so just and the bad thing was I didn't knock myself out. <laughs> so I mean, 
you know, like when you go see the doc and they're like, so on a pain scale of one to 10, like where I was like, dude, yeah, this is a 10. Like just, it, it hurt. Uh, and they, they, uh, medevac me out, uh, and took me in and yeah, I, I shattered my left shoulder, uh, broke a couple of ribs on the left side, uh, broke my pelvis in three spots Yeesh. and the left ankle. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was going from a hundred mile an hour to zero and in an instant. Uh, and it, I ended up in a wheelchair, uh, which was that, that put a lot of stuff. Like I, I didn't like being in a wheelchair, like, man, that, that was terrible. Uh, I mean, I was, I, I was coming unglued. Um, yeah, it was just, it was a bad a bad time you know i didn't want to hear the whole oh everything happens for a reason kind of thing like that wasn't flying with me at the time um just because i i thought that you know something that i was hoping to do that fall mm-hmm. was now gone um and then you know the navy docs that are taking care of me you know they were they were kind of great guys but um one of the navy doctors uh the commander you know, he was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you'll, you know, you're running and that kind of thing, if, if that's going to be happening. And, uh, well, I, I didn't like that of telling me that that's not going to happen. So I went in and, uh, at Walter Reed, they redid my, uh, shoulder the first time and I had to get like a bone graft and stuff put in and, and some screws. Uh, so I get that done at Walter Reed, which that was back then when it was like a dungeon, you know, when, before it hit the news of, of how stuff went down. Uh, I, I come out of there, and this happened in the summer of 2003. In January of 2004, I signed up and went with the Navy team to run the Disney Marathon because uh, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm running. I had already been running. Uh, being at the Naval Academy with their athletic department and yeah. the trainers and stuff that they had, man, they had me like aqua jogging and <laughs> – resistance stuff you know what i mean and and uh the elliptical and and there was some uh, you know some of the guys would come in because like aqua jogging is boring as shit you mm-hmm. know what i mean like it's boring but i'd have guys come in and get in the pool with me because i'm just trying to get back yeah. I, i'm still focused like hey i still got a shot uh, you know what i mean I, I can get better um so you know that happened in june the summer in january i went down and uh, i ran a uh 319 uh, Disney, uh, not my best time, but I was I was pretty stoked uh, with a three nineteen, and I came back with that big stupid Disney medal that they give you. <laughs> I threw it on the commander's desk, and I was like, "There's your fucking PhD. Don't tell me I can't run." And of course, that's going against doctor's orders, kind of a thing. Uh, they got me a new doc. Uh, uh, the new doc that I got, he was great. Uh, he was like, "Yeah, push your body. You know, the, the human body is an amazing machine. Uh, you can, you know, get yourself back. You can get yourself fit." Uh, so I started next back in the pool swimming. Uh, I was over there. You know, the men's swim team was phenomenal. Uh, at Navy, they got a really good swim program there, and the coach was great. So I used to like to go in and swim with the team. Um, and I was in there swimming. I got out of the shower one day and, and I was, as I was like showering on my shoulder, like something was coming out the back of my shoulder. Well, so I go over to the football locker. They put the x-ray on. I got screws coming out back to the hospital. Uh, you know what I mean? My body was refusing some of the screws coming in. Uh, I went through rehab, uh, with that, 
for the second uh, shoulder operation. And uh, General Allen, uh, he was kind of my sponsor. Uh, he had been moved on. He was up at the Pentagon. He's a one-star up the Pentagon, and finally, uh, you know, John Allen called me up to the Pentagon, and he's like, because they put me up on a Navy board, med, mm-hmm. and uh, and I, I went up, and you know, John was like, where where do you want to go? Because you're not, you're done, like you're not. They they were not going to pass you on any kind of jump physical, nothing. You know, McMap, uh, you know, even the shoulder had gotten bad enough to where they were like, dude, you, you keep monkeying around like you're going to lose mobility. Mm. Um, so that, that uh, kind of got the realism uh, in there. And, you know, with him, I, I was hanging out at the academy. And and, uh, and then next thing you know, uh, I got a call from uh, the monitor. Uh, Medi Knox called me, and I was actually at a bowl game in San Diego uh, here with the Navy football, and he called me, and he's like, hey, J.D., we'd like you to come back down to Quantico and, and you know, oversee the schools because uh, they had a sniper school, HRP, high-rest personnel. It's basically uh, pistol shooting mm-hmm. uh, and Savannah Tire, uh, small arms weapon instructor course and breacher school. So they asked me if I'd you know come back down, and I was literally sitting right downtown San Diego, and I'm like, dude, I'm at a bowl game with Navy football right now, and you want me to come back? <laughs> like, I don't want to come back to that. So I was like, hey, I'll call you when I get done uh, out here. I came back, and Medi Knox uh, gave me Mass Sergeant, uh, promoted me, gave me a, a pin up, and pinned me on February 1st, and I went back down to Quantico and uh, gave him uh, a couple more years back down at the schoolhouse. Uh, as a mass sergeant, and then left it at 21. Uh, and I, I think it was uh, it was good for me to be down there. Uh, the, the colonel that I was working for is uh, Mike Mulligan's great guy, and, uh, and Mike, you know, trying to get me ready for for transition. Like mm-hmm. I didn't know this was not the plan. Yeah, I, I wanted to stay at camp as long as possible <laughs> until I get like thirty years and you know then retire yeah. or you know make all the way to E nine because I was an E eight and uh, and yeah it wasn't a it wasn't a plan so I really I didn't know like what what I was gonna do um, and probably the uh, the biggest uh, aspect of of it is you know my wife uh, Tracy uh, you know at the time she's like you know you can. You can do stuff. I mean, it's one thing she'll give me. She's like, you'll work. You know, you're going to show up. You're going to work. Uh, and, you know, one of the guys that had taught me back in the day to cast my net widely, Eric Carlson, uh, he called me and was like, hey, man, you want to do some contract work uh, with infantry weapons? Uh, you know, special weapons, sniper rifles, stuff like that, you know, working for L3 Communications. Mm-hmm. So he called me, and I was like, yeah, do I have to, like, you know, what do I have to do? He goes, well, you know, we got to have, like, a panel interview kind of thing. And so I, I go out to see Eric and everybody that's on the panel. I served with all of them in the yeah. Marine Corps. It was like a going home kind of thing. It was like all these dudes are there, and it's just like this is preliminary. Uh, and so Eric, uh, you know, brought me in, uh, and and, I mean, he took care of me. Uh, gave me a job because uh, again I, I didn't uh, didn't really know what I was going to do. Uh, so how long did you do that contracting job for? A couple years. And then what? How did you end up uh, forming OMNA, which is your OMNA International, which is your leadership company? Is that the right thing to call it? Yeah, uh, yeah. I well, it's uh, experiential, right? Uh, experiential, uh, yeah, learning. experiential learning. Experiential um, learning. 
and so it was it was at l3 um and uh you know in the marine corps you know i had the opportunity because of some of the officers that i served with that let me tag along and, and go on some staff rides uh, historically, which was like super, I mean, you know, going to over and study in Okinawa, the battle uh, over there and seeing the reverse slope defense of the Japanese, like what we kind of went through, the Philippines, you know, the Korea, uh, you know what I mean? So just reading and then getting to go to these places and actually stand on the exact spot where uh, where folks have been. And like I said, I'd, I had read quite a bit. Uh, you know, I remember reading, you know, uh, Hackworth back in the day. You know, those kind of guys were just very influential uh, on me uh, in leadership. And it was just, a, you know, it was kind of like a uh, an, an experience to where, you know, it's not in a classroom. It's not you're actually on the field. It's very uh, it's very hands on kind of 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 learning and, and learning how to lead. And uh, so. I started with with Amna of it started to realize that we could do staff rides um, outside of the Marine Corps. Like there's a there's there's other organizations that are out there, uh, you know, like at the Naval Academy, uh, we used to take the kids to Antietam. You know what I mean? They could do it as a weekend trip. We could take an Antietam. You know, John Allen, he was a big history guy, Marine officer. Of course, loved staff rides. Uh, you know, Gettysburg uh, is another big one. Corporal Seamus Garrity used to uh, live up in Gettysburg up there. We called it Marine Barracks, Gettysburg. Uh, you know what I mean? So there was, you know, going to Gettysburg, the experiential stuff of overseas. You know, the Marine Corps was always big on this uh, um, with doing staff rides. And they were a lot of fun. Um, so, again, this same guy, uh, Eric Carlson, had been dealing with um, the wildland firefighters, uh, the guys, hot shots, mm-hmm. smoke yeah. jumpers, engine crew kind of guys. And I guess they had had a couple of fatality fires. So they did a tri-data study, and they earmarked and went around and looked at different organizations of how they teach leadership. And they ended up at Marine Corps University, and Eric Carlson was the operations officer. And Eric, and they called over, and uh, Craig Huddleston, who's with Omna as well. Craig is another one of my great mentors. Um, Craig was over at uh, Command and Staff, and they were like, hey, do you mind if some firefighter guys come tag along, go to Gettysburg? Sure, bring them along. So they went up to Gettysburg, and uh, when they saw how the Marine Corps just took a pile of dirt, what we call a terrain model. They were like, wow, this is pretty cheap. We've got a lot of dirt. Uh, and and there were so many similarities between wildland firefighting and the Marine Corps. Uh, you know, a hot shot is an infantry, infantry platoon. You know, an engine is like artillery. Uh, they've got aviation. They've got logistics. They've got, you know, incident commanders. And they were putting people in harm's way. Uh, they're making plans, they're using terrain models, and they're sending folks out just like on a military operation. Uh, so they really bought into this staff ride uh, concept as well as the uh, the Naval Academy. You know, so the Naval Academy uh, with uh, Joe Thomas, who's still up there uh, with the leadership and ethics, great guy, retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel, Pennsylvania guy. Joe and them, I mean, we've taken the Naval Academy uh, up to Gettysburg uh, because the team captains – uh, with the football and all the sports uh, that were up there, we're like, hey, we got a guy that can take the team captains 
and take them to Gettysburg. So, you know, through NAAA, uh, I took the team captains up there because, you know, I knew a lot of the coaches because obviously I spent a lot of time at their facilities, uh, you know what I mean, kind of playing around. And, and I, I just started, like, at first it was kind of a uh, um, kind of something fun to do. Um, but I, I didn't know how to run a business, uh, so I basically went online of because you, know, you can find everything online and like how do you start a business dot com, and then you know okay well you gotta you gotta pick a name you gotta get a Dunn's number you gotta get a ten you gotta get you know so there was a lot of reading involved <laughs> because I had no clue like how do you get a business license I mean it's just amazing like. I, I became so more educated, you know what I mean, of just starting a business yeah. and, and getting QuickBooks. Like, how do you do taxes? How do you run payroll? Like, how do you, you know what I mean? Yeah, you want to learn a lot of stuff, start some businesses. Start a business. Start with just one. You're going to learn a lot. Yeah, I've, I've, I've just got one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean. But even like, I, I think the, well, I know the first business that I started was this gym that we're, we're in today. And just the amount of learning that you do. And then, you know, your next business, you already have some of those lessons learned and you can apply them. And then the next business after that one, you can apply some more. And yeah, but if you're a young person or, or you just got out of, you know, the service, you start a business. I don't care if you do, you know, you sell, uh, you know, clothespins or something, painted clothespins. If you start a business to sell painted clothespins, you're going to learn a ton. You're going to learn a ton. And you might make some money along the way. You might lose some money, but you're going to learn a lot. That's for sure. Uh, and this is how you and I eventually linked up because at Echelon Front, we wanted to do what we call EF Battlefield. And we wanted to have, you know, a, an expert that has more knowledge about the battles than we do. And that's how that's how we linked up for the first time, which was awesome. Yeah, uh, you know, we uh, so we started out. So I've had the company since 2010, uh, and, and Omna stands for One Man National Asset. <laughs> uh, and I learned from from Al Gray that before you decide what you're going to do, decide who you're doing it with, and. You know, uh, Eric Carlson, the same guy. I mean, he's, uh, of course, I'm going to do everything with Eric Carlson. I live three quarters of a mile from Eric Carlson <laughs> still to this day. Uh, I run past his house in the morning. I mean, he is a huge impact. And, and uh, another Craig Huddleston. Uh, Craig Huddleston is the most interesting man in the world. Uh, he went from E1 to E7 to O1 to O6. Uh, a little so over thirty-three. Years. He was a drill instructor. Uh, I mean, he's just like he's like one of those guys that just did everything. Uh, you know what I mean? He did a tour with the British Royal Commandos over in Europe. I mean, he's just the most interesting man in the world. Uh, and you know, he's uh, it's still a, a downhill ski instructor at Angel Fire, New Mexico. He's in his seventies. I mean, you wouldn't know it. Uh, the guy is just he doesn't stop. Uh, huge impact on me uh, in in my life, and then all the other guys uh, that that, uh, that that work uh, with Omnit. You know, of course, you know we start out with with Marines, um, and then we we started expanding to where, like in Wildland Fire, they were like, "Can we develop staff rides for Wildland Fire?" So you got like South Canyon Fatality Fires, uh, 
the uh, the Dude Fire down in, in Arizona. You've got uh, what the movie came out with, Only the Brave, mm-hmm. uh, was about the Yarnell Hill fire. We developed that staff ride. That's why I was just at last week uh, doing those. Because like I said, I mean, it's, it's, it's experiential leadership. Uh, and it's not necessarily it's it's armchair quarterbacking the events, but you're not there to refight the fire or refight the battle. Mm-hmm. You're there to to take a step back and look at the leadership decisions that were made, um, and and how could how could we learn from that? How can we move forward? Uh, and then like teaming up with with you guys, uh, you know what I mean? Like I, I can remember when I when I first with like Steve and Jason, uh, who I love because uh, they are just class act characters. <laughs> Um, like when we got done with the first staff ride, uh, you know, a few years back and we're, we're sitting in the, in the room and, and, and they're like, dude, this was so much fun. <laughs> like you know, the interaction, uh, with the participants that are there, the people that you get to meet. I mean, you remember the, I mean, some of the folks, I mean, they even came back and did a little bighorn with yeah, us, yeah. uh, you know, and, and just the experience on the leadership aspect of experiencing it that they're to me you just you can't get it from a classroom you, you can't get it from a book uh you know when you're standing you know in the peach orchard at gettysburg uh, and you, and the discussions that you're having of lead, i mean everybody has a dan sickles in their organization uh everybody it's just for ten thousand years we've been trying to figure yeah. out how to deal with people and and delivering of a staff ride it's so memorable like of, of being there and you know it's just so uh, we basically developed a business around experiential staff rides uh and you know and we do it for you know fish and wildlife u.s forest service fdny you know, san diego lifeguards i took the san diego lifeguards to gettysburg which was like super cool like those are a great bunch of guys, yeah. and I learned more from them than they probably did from me. Like I didn't know they were sworn officers and could write tickets, but they don't get a gun. Talk about the ability to to use your you know your communication skills. You better be pretty good. Uh, you know what I mean? And you know, bringing them to Gettysburg, everybody's like you know Gettysburg of like who are these? It's like they're lifeguards, like from San Diego. Like I mean, the whole Baywatch. I mean, the guys are just phenomenal people. Uh, and then we do a lot Orange County. Like I know you've done yeah. stuff with Orange County Fire yeah. Authority up the road. Uh, but then when you meet like the smoke jumpers and the hot shots, that's like kind of like these people. Like if we would have had Discovery Channel, like when you and I were kids in the '80s, and mm-hmm. I would have seen like, wait a minute, I can get paid money to get a chainsaw, which are always fun to operate. <laughs> and you're going to let me jump out of an aircraft <laughs> in the middle of nowhere and fight fire, and th- I'm going to get paid yeah. like. That's badass. Oh, yeah. uh, and just like with the hot shots, I mean, we're going to put me in a buggy. We're going to ride around with like 20 to 30 other men and women that just want to get after it, you know what I mean, with a Pulaski, <laughs> you know what I mean, and fight wildland fire. Uh, you know, I mean, what? I mean, just, they're just great people. They, are, they provide a great service to the country. But, you know, growing up in Virginia, West Virginia, we don't have wildland fire mm-hmm. like here. I mean, yeah. like everybody out here, you all in Cali yeah. know what wildland it's fire is. a West is. Coast thing. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that, that would be such a cool job. Uh, and they're just great people. Yeah, that's uh, a freaking hard job, man. You know, yeah. you and I were talking earlier today, and just when, when you've been in the military and you look at a hill – <laughs> and you know what it takes to walk up a hill. You you appreciate hills, 
and those wildland fire guys, man, they just actually, I have a guy that guided me a couple hunts and he's a wildland fire guy. And I mean, you want to talk about a dude that could hoof out some miles, bro? I mean, this dude was just like, okay. I mean, with no expression on his face, you know, other than like, what, like, where, where are we going next? No factor. Like, no factor. This guy's put some miles in, man. These are like mountain goats. Yeah, they're like yeah. mountain goats. Yeah. I mean, and they, with like gas cans and they got like chainsaws. Uh, and, and they do a, I mean, it, it's a, and they're just a great community of people. Uh, so I, I had the experience. I do, I do a lot uh, with those folks. And, and they've expanded to where now with Omna, now we've got, Former, I got you know, former hot shots, former wildland firefighters. I got former uh, forest ranger. Uh, you know what I mean? That uh, she works with us. Uh, I mean, just the, the the people that I've had the opportunity to meet over the past you know, twelve years of doing this. I mean, it, it's just it's amazing. Uh, I, and of course, like I enjoy the hell out of it, which makes it even better. Uh, you know what? I don't have to go to a cubicle, and you know what I mean. We get the and you know, it's like my wife's like, "What are you doing over there?" I'm working. No, Allegedly. No, no, you're reading a book. That's my job. I get to read. Well, uh, you know, we were lucky enough to link up and, and, and we, you know, we bring a lot of corporate people in. We bring every, everyone in, a lot of corporate people, a lot of business people in that go through these staff rides and pass on these lessons learned. Um, and there's so much to learn from, from these events and the leadership and the personalities and the people that undergo them. And I was talking to you, and I always feel uh, kind of selfish because I get to hang out with you, and I was and learn from these battlefields and from these battles. And I thought to myself, "Hey, maybe we should try and extend this knowledge to more people." So I came up with the idea of doing a series of podcasts about the Civil War battles, and just so everybody knows, we're that's what we're doing. We're gonna we're gonna put together a series of podcasts about the Civil War. Where it's gonna be on this it's gonna be on this podcast feed. It's gonna be Jocko Podcast Civil War Excursion because it's gonna you know there's some people that make ah, I don't I don't really feel like listening to Civil War, and if you don't want to listen to it, that's fine. You probably will. I, it's sitting here talking to you. It's, it's like trying to, I can't wait. I can't wait to pull the string on your back where you just start talking about Civil War and battles and personalities, man. It's awesome. And yeah, you'll be hearing a bunch from JD on this feed. Um, yeah. What, what do we miss? We miss anything else? No, that's... Uh that, that's uh that's that's pretty much it. Uh, I, I I will I remember when I talked to you like it's one of the first times I when your book came out Extreme Ownership and of course I'd read it uh, and I had uh, some of the folks that I deal with that that was like a, a pre read uh, you know because a lot of the people that we deal with you know we we encourage reading lists mm. in any organization like everybody should read. Uh, and that was one of the books, uh, Extreme Ownership, uh, prior to us going to Little Bighorn. So, and when you actually look at it after the fact, and and being with you and all the, with the guys with uh, Echelon Front and doing now, when you look at like the battlefield, you could be like, well, that dude definitely did not show any extreme ownership. Oh yeah, uh, you know what it, I mean. Uh, it's crazy to go out and you know I, I used to tell the platoons when I was taking a platoon to land warfare or, or urban training, I'd say, look, the, I know the mistakes you're gonna make. I already know the mistakes you're gonna make. And you're, you know, you're not gonna cover and move. You're gonna make things too complicated. You're, not, you're gonna have trying to do too many things at once. You're gonna have centralized command. Everything's gonna fall apart. 
if you follow these simple rules, you're gonna do good. And it's so crazy to look back at history and look back at Gettysburg or Little Bighorn. And you can see, oh, no cover and move right here. Everything falls apart. Oh, they too complicated. Everything falls apart. Oh, the, trying to do too many things at once. Everything falls apart. Oh, the commander's trying to direct every single person. Everything falls apart. The same mistakes get made in the Civil War, in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, any, any war, pretty much. The same mistakes get made. The same leadership makes mistakes get made. And what's crazy is they're the same leadership mistakes that get made in any organization. In any organization, it's they don't support each other. They make things too complicated. They don't figure out their priorities. They don't focus their efforts. And they try and centralize and control everything. And all those things are bad. And when you come out, and we, we the next thing we're doing with you, let me look at the dates here. It's, uh, what do we got? Next March. battlefield is March 21st through the 23rd on the hollowed grounds of Gettysburg. You know, there is a whole, I guess I said this with Jason, you know, when Jason was on, there's like a spiritual side to this. There's a leadership side, sure, but you go on to that battlefield and you, you, you feel the sacrifice that was made and it's very powerful. Um, both at Gettysburg and Little Bighorn, and I'm sure we're going to do a bunch of other battlefields in the future. But if anybody wants to come to walk the battlefield with us, uh, echelonfront.com, check out the next EF battlefield. It's March 21st through the 23rd. Uh, for your company, for for Omna, it's theomna.com. So you do you do stuff all over the place. You run a bunch of these events. Your people run a bunch of these events. You're on Instagram, Omna underscore international. You're on Facebook, Omna International LLC. That's if people want to find you, that's where they can find you. Um, and that's where they can find some of the courses that you guys are running, which is awesome. What else? Echo, you got anything? You got any questions? Oh, uh, what what year again were you at Navy? Uh, I was at Navy 2003 and left 2006. Oh, damn. Because we'd play them a lot. I, I played at University of Hawaii, so that we're in the um, – the same conference. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where uh, the head coach at Navy, Ken uh, Nehemiah, he uh, quarterbacked at Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Did you did you play in the Naval Academy? You played against them? We, I didn't play the game, no. But we played them, yeah, the team mm. did. But I personally did not. You were on the bench, kind of? I was on the bench. I was red-shirting, for uh, sure. Um, but, yeah. But that, that was a little bit before that time, though, 95 to 98. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Did you get special treatment at University of Hawaii being on the football team? Yes, <clears throat> Yeah, they do, and that may and that makes sense too, because a lot of times football brings in a lot of the money, you know. So you you, know, you have that dynamic for sure. Yeah, when it, you know when you look at the at the football division one compete, I can remember like I had a lot of cool opportunities. Like I got to travel with the team, mm-hmm. so like we go play Notre Dame. I mean, it's big, big school, man. It's big yeah. program. Uh, you know what I mean? And I, so I, I'm over because I'm a gunny. I can just go wherever I want. And I, so I go over to their locker room. The size of those dudes, yeah, like compared to the Naval Academy midshipmen, uh, you know what I mean? They were tree trunks, man. These dudes were huge. I walked back over. One of the quarterbacks at uh, Navy, Craig Candido, I, I went over to Craig, and I was like, dude, I, I'm glad I'm not you today, brother. <laughs> Because <laughs> you're running triple option football. JD, right? yeah, triple JD's option. pep talk. I'm glad I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. not you. <laughs> I mean, they should have sent you back to the back to Annapolis after that pep talk, bro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those dudes. I mean, that's and that's where 
you know, when you're talking about like having these kids there compete at that level, like you at Hawaii, I mean, it's a different. That's just a different level of competition uh, playing those those folks, man. There's some big, and those guys. That's all they do is play football. They're not yeah. doing double E and you know worried yeah. about height, weight requirements, and service selection. They're there to play football and go pro. Yeah, though that's interesting how you talk about a guy will be on the O line or the D line, then he has to go change his whole body. I was like, bro, that's true. You can't be six four, two ninety. Over 300 pounds and then want to run, you know, all these miles. It's not like that. Yeah, you got to become a different human. Yeah. You got to become a different human being. Oh, yeah. Like, get and change your DNA yeah. is what it boils down to. Yeah, that's true. Even, I mean, I played a skill position, but even like running three miles, you're talking about eight miles, marathons, all that, bro. I couldn't do that. Like, <laughs> I could sprint pretty fast, but man, that the long distance is like a different kind of running. Yeah, they they used to do something called fourth quarters and the getting ready. So it was kind of like uh, they they'd show up in the morning out on the field, mm-hmm. and they would have stations, yeah, you know, like fourth yeah, quarter yeah. circuit kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Well, you know, I mean, I, so I, I go in. Of course, I've got cleats. I've got everything. Like Hell I've yeah. got everything the kids have. Like I, I love going to practice. Uh, you know what I mean? And uh, so I, I'm going to go do fourth quarters with the team. So first day I go out and I, I pick skills players to go with. Mm-hmm. Wrong move. They're these guys. They're fast twitch muscles, man. Mm-hmm. They're making me look silly. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think and they I'm, weigh twice as much as you. Oh yeah. So the next day, I'm going with O line. <laughs> <laughs> I I went to one of my seal buddies was friends with a bunch of San Diego Chargers, and I went to his wedding. And dude, these guys are just not. They're like a different species. It's yeah. like when you look at a Chihuahua yeah. versus like a. Great Dane, and you yeah. think, how are these the same kind of animal? Yep. I'm standing around looking at these dudes, going, "How are these guys the same kind of animals?" <laughs> me, because I don't, I don't like this at all. Yeah, yeah. That, I remember there was like one of the, I think it was one of the Chargers here training with Sarge, uh-huh. and he was just teaching them some little bit of jujitsu stuff. Yeah. And I looked at him, and he was like, uh, I forget, it might have been a fullback or something. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at him and saying, man, I forget, I forgot how big football players are. They're big. And even thinking back, I know the numbers. Like, I know, like, my friend Jeff, he was, he, he actually ended up playing for the 49ers. Jeff Ulbrick. He was 6'1", 255, and he ran a 4'5". And I remember at the time, I'm thinking, like, oh, man, he's pretty fast for, like, being a big, you know, guy. But he's not big compared to, like, no. the D-line or the O-line or whatever. But, man, he, me thinking about that right now, bro, I'm not used to that kind of size anymore. Usually it's That's just a normal. Big, and running a four or five at two fifty five, yeah. like when that guy hits you. Oh yeah. That's that's Shh. not that's not yeah. cool. Bro, no. you're going down. Like oh, there's yeah, yeah. you're going down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're going down. That's yeah. just pure power. Oh yeah. Yeah, these big Samoan guys too, six five, three thirty, three forty. And still fast. Giant. Oh yeah. Yeah. These pulling guards that come, they're just like this big mass of a human. Oh man. Yeah, it's, I forget how big they are. People. Yeah, I mean, that, that's why we invented gunpowder. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Worse than that, yeah. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, anything, else, anything else, J.D.? We're going to get a, do- a big dose of you on the podcast here. Um, anything else from nope. you? Nope. Uh, let's talk about how to support this podcast, um, how to support America, mm-hmm. right? And... Of course, want to support ourselves. Speaking of being jacked, good tool for being jacked, creatine. Yes. <laughs> creatine is out. We just came out with creatine. That's good. How long were you thinking about doing that? Because I remember Probably. the idea came up a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Like just the idea. It was one of those things where 
we had to be able to do it at a scale where it made sense oh, yeah. because because we I don't just want to be like oh we'll just throw our name in the hat with everybody else I right. want to make it good yeah, yeah. and all that stuff but yeah it's been it's been a it's probably been a few years that we were had that in the in the queue it makes sense because it is one of those supplements that's like reliably good yep. kind of across yep. the board you know I remember, it's crazy but you, on that little video mm-hmm. you made when you're like yeah in the 90s and it's weird that's when I really heard about it the no most. what's yeah what's cool is that that's I, I I remember when it came out. Yeah. It came out and I remember it and everyone's like, dude, creatine, creatine, creatine. And I got on creatine. I was on deployment on the USS Cleveland, the steam and cleave. And I brought (laughs) cruise boxes with this protein powder that had creatine in it. And this is the one that I talk about where it's vanilla. I don't even like vanilla to this day because I drank vanilla protein shanks for Mm. six straight months and I would hold my nose like it was bad tequila and just like, oh, gut it down. You don't have to do that anymore. You can get jonkofuel.com, get your creatine, get jacked. The the other cool thing is they've done so much research on it now. It like helps, it just doesn't only help you get stronger. Helps your athletic performance. Helps your helps your cognitive function. Like it's it's just straight good for you. So if you want to get some of that, jockofuel.com. And that's not to mention resistance training. All the studies that they have been putting into that. All the benefits of resistance training. So now you got the creatine supporting the resistance training, supporting all the other functions of your body. Boom. Yeah, resistance training. Jack. Resistance training. No offense, JD, because I know you're a runner. Do you jack steel at all? No, I just. Calisthenics? With, yeah, I do pull ups. I got a pull up okay, bar. Cool, no, cool. How, yeah, pull ups, calisthenics. Right. Yeah, that's right. No, that's no, just yeah. old school Marine Corps. Yeah, no too. jacking of steel. <laughs> jacking <laughs> you steel. you, you jacked your shoulder. <laughs> now you're not jacking steel. <laughs> no. Uh, what else? Discipline go. Yeah. Right? Energy drink, oh, redefined, man. healthy, all good stuff, no bad stuff. Can you imagine just having something that's got no downside? How legit is that? Very legit. That's the legit here. Yep. No downside. There's no. There's no price to pay. None. Oh, well, it costs three bucks or whatever. But oh yeah. There's yeah, no yeah. price like to else. pay yeah, yeah, for sure. Physically. Yeah. Health wise. Yeah. Same thing with a ready drink milk. Did you get a shipment yet? Yes, I did. <laughs> it's Bro, my a game kids changer. Are, my kids are t- it's, stealing them. It's gonna be gone. Yeah. It's gonna be gone. There's no way you can have ready drink milk in the house with children. I had to make a rule. Straight up rule, like you're not allowed to have these kind of They're off limits. Yeah, off Those limits, just 100%. For you. Oh, yeah. I opened one, they drank it all. Straight up. That's why yeah. I made the rule. Well, we're Very making good. as much as we can. We're going to, we, we got it on the web. We're, so, yeah, the ready to drink milk, it's freaking awesome. It's a game, it's kind of a game changer. It is kind of a game changer. You know why I think it's a game changer? Because, man, there's no reason to eat anything else. Like, <laughs> You know, maybe you're walking by, no, you know what I'm saying? Like you're walking by the fridge and you're like, well, what could I have right now? And you're kind of, everything's an effort or it's got yeah, downside, you know, you know with sure. a milk ready to drink. There's no, there's zero, yeah. once again, no downside. You don't have to make it. You, you just have to twist the up. freaking cap yeah. off, bro. Yeah. And you're in. You're, you're correct about that. That's so real. Get yourself some ready to drink milk. Get yourself some creatine. Go, go discipline, go. Jockofuel.com at Wawa. You're in Virginia. You're oh, yeah. going into Wawa. Yep. Just get you cleaning the shelves out. Yeah, they're cleaned out like all <laughs> the time. Right uh, on. Yeah. Right hey, on. Wawa. We'll send more. So if you're East Coast, Wawa, you can get it stuff at the vitamin shop. Military commissaries. We're working the exchange. We should be in the exchanges soon. Hannaford's, Dash Stores, Wakefern, ShopRite, Circle K, H E B, Tejas. You know we got you. Murphy's down in the southeast, Meyer in the Midwest. So go go get yourself some Jocko Fuel. Get no downside. 
That's a thing. Not too many things in this world. Not too many things in this world, no downside. OriginUSA.com. Jeans, boots, geese, hunt gear, rash guards, t-shirts, beanies. I could, how long is this gonna go? This could go a while. Yeah, Here's the thing, all made in America. Right now, you know, you're seeing some stuff on the news right now. You're seeing in China, there's a, a practical revolution happening right now. They're, they got workers rebelling, slave labor rebelling. It's about time. Well, that's China. That's where your clothes are getting made if you're not buying from originusa.com. You're, you're enabling slave labor to happen. So don't do it. Get the best quality stuff. Get the best quality stuff made in America. Don't support slave labor. That's what I got for you. OriginUSA.com. It's true. Also, Jocko's a store called Jocko's Store. Did I say geese? Did I say jujitsu geese? Yeah. I was talking to some jujitsu. Who was I talking to? Someone was like, bruh. (laughs) When you put an origin jujitsu gi on, it's a it's it's totally it's, it's a different, totally different thing. Different, yeah. It's a different thing. Oh, yeah. It's like you were it's like you were driving in a Camry. Sure. No offense against Camrys, <laughs> right? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> but then you got put into like a Cadillac. You know what I'm saying? I know. You're Next saying, level. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, a different yeah. thing. It's yeah. a different experience. Yeah, that's a good. Hey, your analogy. brother used to have a Prius. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Does he still have it? No. See, he had that Prius. I didn't know what to think of a Prius, right? Sure. Because I'd never been in one. Sure. I got in his Prius. Bro, that thing was. You didn't like that? No, that thing was no, foolish, no. man. Foolish. <laughs> <laughs> I know it gets good mileage and whatnot. No, but I mean, it felt, it felt like, it felt like economy class. Yes, it, it was very economy class. I'm sure there's different levels of interior of yeah. Prius. I'm sure that's my assumption. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how many Priuses I've ever been in besides his, but you know. I think like you yeah. hit the bump and you feel it. Oh, that whole the whole deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Too. You're it's right. economy class. Yeah, yeah, it's different. It's different. So don't so, yeah. do that, man. Don't yeah. get don't get an economy class gi. No, get a first class gi. Yeah, get yeah, you're gonna feel gi. the difference for sure. Especially uh-huh. when you got to roll around in that thing too. People trying to choke you with it. You will. That's gonna make a difference. Hey, if you travel first class and then you go back to economy, you hate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the same thing. It's not gonna work. You put on you put on the origin gi. You're in first class, then you go back into an economy yeah. gi, you're gonna hate it. It's gonna be pretty much. And once again, you're also gonna know in your subconscious mind that like a 14 year old girl in a slavery position was forced to make your gi at gunpoint. 14 hours a day. But 14 like hours a day. Yeah, damn. So just keep that in mind, originusa.com. <laughs> on that no. Also, Jocko Store, if you wanna represent on the past, discipline. Equals freedom, shirts and hats, merch, if you will. Good, this is quality, though. It's not like the the cheap, free, I made it very wearable. We made it very wearable. Actually, a lot of people say it's their favorite fitting shirt. Shirt locker. Shirt locker is a different uh, thing. Same quality. kind of? Custom, sure. Yeah, they are custom. But, yes, it's a subscription. You get a new one every month. Cool designs. A lot of people seem to like that one as well. So, yeah, yeah. this is all on Jocko's. There's a couple coming that are, I'm pretty... I'm pretty on board with the plan for some of the t-shirts in the yeah. shirt locker that are coming out. Yeah. Uh, subscribe to that. Subscribe to the podcast. Go to jockounderground.com. Look, there's stuff going on with the platforms right now. It's actually crazy to watch what's going on. Social media, big tech companies, freedom of speech. There's all kinds of mayhem going on. Look, we got to have a contingency plan. We, meaning you listening, us sitting here, contingency plan. JockoUnderground.com. If everything falls apart, 
we'll be there. It's $8.18 a month. If you can't afford it, that's okay. We got you. Email assistance at underground at jockounderground.com. But listen, we don't know what's going to happen with these platforms. And we can't just look, you can't put your trust. You can't put complete trust into something you have no control over. You have to control your destiny. You have to take ownership of your future. So look, if everything, look, if we can stay on this path, cool. Hey, we're down. We're, yep. we're yeah, it's fine. Yep. If they want to let us keep talking and we'll keep talking and we're all good, hey, we got no problem with that. But I can't just rely on that. We all can't just rely on the, the benevolence of these people that have no vested interest in what we're doing. In fact, sometimes it could be conceived that they have a vested interest in not supporting what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. That's where we have this. JockoUnderground.com. Check that out. YouTube. Subscribe to Jocko Podcasts. Subscribe to Origin USA. Psychological Warfare. FlipsideCanvas.com. Got a bunch of books. You know what they are. Check them out. Echelon Front. If you want to come to one of these events with JD and I, go to echelonfront.com. We got a leadership consultancy. This is one of the things that we do there is these battlefield tours, EF Battlefield. Next one is March 21st through the 23rd. It's up in Gettysburg. It's, it, it is going to impact the way you think and it's gonna impact your understanding of the world if you come out to that. I, it impacts me every time. Uh, so echelonfront.com, that's our leadership consultancy. We also have the Academy Online, online training, extremeownership.com. This is where we teach these lessons of life to everyone through the interwebs which years ago, this wasn't even a conceivable thing. It would just seem like, oh, how can you, how can you learn something over the internet? Mm-hmm. But Echo Charles, how, you know yes. those videos that you make? Yeah, I do. Where'd I you do. learn how to do that? Mostly the internet. Mostly? A lot of on-the-job uh, training as well. Well, you- On the field, where, sorry, in where, the field. Where'd the knowledge come from? Oh yeah, the internet. See, so there you go. So check that out, extremeownership.com. If you wanna learn to live your life better, you wanna learn to lead, You wanna learn to maneuver around the battlefield of humans, which is what we're all doing. Go to extremeownership.com. And if you wanna help service members, you wanna help active and retired, their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization. If you wanna donate, you wanna get involved, americasmightywarriors.org. And also don't forget about Micah Fink's organization, heroesandhorses.org. If you wanna connect with JD on the interwebs, the Omna, O-M-N-A, V-O-M-N-A.com on Instagram, O-M-N-A underscore, underscore. Oh, yeah. International. <laughs> Facebook, O-M-N-A. You just call it Omna, huh? Yeah. You made it into a word. Yeah, it's Omna. That One word. man national asset. Everybody is a national asset. This starts as like a tongue-in-cheek thing, though, right? Like, hey, that guy thinks he's a one-man oh, national yeah. asset. He's, he's the Omna. <laughs> <laughs> but then it becomes, on the battlefield in business and life, everyone's job is critical to a team's success. Yeah, everybody. So there you go. Uh, as far as Echo and I, we're also on Twitter. Twitter's hot right now. You know that? Hey, Echo Charles lost all of his Twitter followers because he got stolen. How did somebody steal that from you? Did you you get fished or something? Yeah, I probably clicked on something. It happened that quick, huh? Yeah, well, I was 
I didn't really go on Twitter that much, so mm-hmm. maybe I clicked on one of these lists. What no, kind of lists? You know, like 10 things you should avoid when you go to, I don't know, Russia or something. I don't okay. know. One of, you know, they have those lists. They're, I always click on them. Okay, so these are, these are clickbait. You're on the internet. You're surfing the interweb. Yeah, and then it's like. Wait, is it inside go, of Twitter? This is what it'll do. Here's a heads up. It'll, it'll be something stuff. along the lines of this. And it's, it's totally my fault. Where they'll be like, uh, oh, go back to Twitter. You know, like you'll go on the website. It'll be all messy website or whatever. And I'll, I'm usually pretty good at navigating oh. it. But then it'll be like, oh, navigate back to Twitter. So, so you go like, back. Wait, you clicked on 10 things to avoid in Russia. Yeah, and I'll read it. It, read it comes up. There's 19 pop-up ads. There's a bunch of yeah. weird shit going yeah. on that thing. You maybe yeah. even got a little flagged warning that came up that this For, is a corrupt scenario. Probably, yeah. <laughs> you just ignored all that. You yes. read the 10 things. Maybe yeah. we should do a, uh, uh, an underground podcast about the 10 things to avoid in Russia since we did get the well, knowledge we paid not, for I don't it. know. Yeah, there, there was a list of some sort. Yeah. So then it says, do you want to return to Twitter? Yeah, navigate back to Twitter, and then you go, and then, like, if I'm not mistaken, it'll say, like, Oh, you're like logged out or something like that. So you log back <laughs> in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bro! I, if I it was something along those lines, bro. So is you, what I'm saying. You, It'll be like confirm or I don't know something like that, bro. You, you yeah, yeah. I you did. messed up. Big yeah, time. I walked right into it. Um, and then my account is just gone. They go in there and they change your username, your password, everything. So your email doesn't even show up in the as the account. So I'm like, whatever. It's just Twitter. And then like. Maybe a week or two later, people are like messaging me like, hey, someone hacked your Twitter. So I'm like, yeah, I know, whatever. And then that day with me and you, I went and looked for it. It was just gone. Everything was gone. So I just signed up under my original name. It was available. So what, uh, how many followers did you have? Do you know how many followers did you have? Well, like, I don't know, 70 something thousand. 70,000. And now how many do you have? Seventy? Uh, yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. But you're bummed out. You're sad because The Rock, didn't The Rock follow you? No, no, no. Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan yeah, followed yeah, you on yeah, Twitter, yeah. and now he's gone. Yep, brutal, brutal. Well, you still follow me now, so that's. Cool. I think I was. I think I might have been your first. Oh, I was your first follower. Yeah, I, yeah you were literally. There so, you go. You know. Anyways, if you want to follow Echo Charles <laughs> on the on the Twitter, on the gram, on the Facebook, I'm on there too. At Echo Charles and at Jocko Willink. Watch out. Yeah. Watch out for the algorithm. Number one. Number two. Watch out for the hackers. The you know yeah. that stuff. JD. Anything else? No, I'm good. <laughs> right all, man. Well, uh, thanks for coming down. Appreciate it. Um, more important, thanks for your service in the Marine Corps. Teaching Marines how to fight. Teach them how to lead. Um, it's been an honor working with you the past few years, and I look forward to doing more in the future. Thanks to all our military, and tonight especially to our Marines. <laughs> Thank you for holding the line around the world to protect and preserve our way of life. And the same goes for all our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol, secret service, all first responders. We're only able to live the way we do because you live your life and sacrifice the way you do. So thank you. And everyone else out there, remember what the Marine Corps says that while physical health and strength and well-being is important, and it certainly is, it certainly is, but remember that the principal weapon is the mind. So read, study, learn, and of course, keep getting after it. And until next time, this is JD 
and Echo and Jocko out.